Welcome to another episode of Jacobin Weekends. I am your host, Nando Vila. My regular co-host, Anna Kasparian, is off today, so I am joined today by Jen Pan, the host of The Jacobin Show, which you can watch every Wednesday evening. Jen, how are you? Nando, I'm good. Uh, I was just thinking, I don't think I've seen you since the Jacobin Drunken New Year's Eve live stream, uh, which is still available somewhere on the Jacobin <laughs> channel. I don't know that it's our finest moment of intellectual production, but I will say that everyone's favorite Civil War historian, Matt Carp, does take off two different shirts during that stream. Did you, do you remember Maybe that? I was... <laughs> I do remember that, and maybe I was uh, I was too drunk to really remember <laughs> properly because taking off more than two shirts. I remember it was like four or five, you know. And he had just different. He had like an Amy Klobuchar shirt. He had a Pete Buttigieg shirt. He had all the shirts, you know. Which is like I appreciate that he's a Democrat. You know, on the left, like our main political fight is is like the intra kind of center of left of center fight, right? Right, right. The Republicans, whatever, you yeah. know. So I appreciate that he's a Democratic primary completist mm -hmm, and had a shirt mm -hmm. for every single candidate. He literally had a shirt for every single candidate. I'm sure it's some kind of metaphor that he peeled them off one by one to reveal uh, the, the true shirt underneath, which I'm sure everybody yeah. can guess. <laughs> but that's all to say, hello, Nando. Hey, how are you? How's it I'm going? Good. <laughs> Welcome to the weekends. You Thanks. Know, you're wearing you're wearing your Look, you know, usually you got your suit and tie on, on, on the weekday show, which is the more serious show. Let's be, let's be real. You know, right, here I'm, on Saturdays, uh, we like to have a good time. We're going to have a good time. Um, we are going to have a good time talking about Biden. But I know that something that you all do on the weekend show before getting to the meat of the discussion is a little ad read. So yes. what do we got this week? Because until we overthrow capitalism, we got to bring home the bacon. Well, you know, if you join the Verso Book Club, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website that includes books and merch for as long as you are a subscriber. Each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month. And if you join in April, you'll get four books. Planet on Fire. A Manifesto for the Age of Environmental Breakdown by Matthew Lawrence and Laurie Laburn Langton. Terminal Boredom by Izumi Suzuki, a short story collection translated from Japanese. Prophets of Deceit, a study of the techniques of the American agitator by Norbert Guterman and Leo Lowenthal. And the updated paperback edition of Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life by Natasha Leonard. Do you live a non-fascist life, Jen? I, I, you know, I like to think that I do. Um, I looking through those books, the the like book of short stories looks amazing. I know Verso yeah. doesn't put out very much fiction, but uh, that looks really cool. So, terminal boredom. Term you know? Terminal sounds boredom. Sounds like an exciting. Exactly. Sounds like an exciting. <laughs> <laughs> like an exciting adventure. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, all right. Well, I also want to quickly mention, um, as I'm sure people know, uh, Ben Burgess, a friend of the show, is coming on uh, a little later to talk about his new book. So I'm yes. very excited for that. Uh, we all love Ben Burgess. Um, but before we get to Ben, um, Nando, I think we had said that we were going to do a little Biden update. Um, I know that on the weekend show, something that you guys have been doing is kind of piecing through Biden's spending plans, his economic stimulus package. I feel like every week you have kind of a new update on the sorts of proposals he he's uh, put forward. Uh, there's, of course, the question of whether he's the new FDR. The weekend's consensus is not quite. Um, but this week, there's a new development. Uh, so we've, we've heard about all of the things that Biden wants to spend on, including um, you know, uh, pre-K education, uh, family leave, uh, things like infrastructure. And last week, or should I say earlier this week, he answered the question of how he's going to pay for it. The, the answer is taxing the rich. And um, part of his proposal to tax the rich is not just raise uh, marginal tax rates on the top income bracket, but to also raise capital gains taxes. Um, so I, I, I guess I just want to quickly say, you know, for anybody who's kind of unclear on what a capital gains tax is, uh, don't be embarrassed. Uh, if you're not a rich person, why would you know? Um, I, <laughs> I didn't know for many years. Um, but basically, capital gains um, are any kind of profit that you make when you sell a stock or property or like art or anything like that. Um, and capital gains have historically been taxed at a much, much lower rate than wage income. So it's basically a huge uh, tax break to the wealthy because they're the ones that own all the capital. They're the ones that own the stocks, the property and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, so so this idea to raise capital gains uh, that Biden's putting forward, I think is huge. Um, I, I, you know, Obama famously during his term also raised capital gains taxes a little bit, but he famously said he was not gonna raise them any higher than they had been during Reagan. And right. uh, Biden, on the other hand, is proposing to raise capital gains taxes on the top income bracket to almost 40%, which is huge. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to overstate just how remarkable this is politically because I did not see this on the horizon at all. I mean, I thought that the capital gains uh, tax would, would be a sort of sacrosanct thing that we wouldn't see um, any real movement on. Um, it's 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 that famous Warren Buffett thing, right, where he always says that he, he pays less in taxes than his secretary. And it's because most rich people uh, get the vast majority of their income through capital gains, not through, like you said, wage income. And, you know, I, 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 I find it kind of strange because Biden is just this kind of thoroughly uninspiring political figure on so many levels. But the, the reality is that this used to be kind of the standard MO for the Democratic Party in the years of ascendancy in the middle of the 20th century and second half of the 20th century, in which like Republicans always complained that all Democrats did was tax, 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 spend, 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 win, 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 that it was just a winning political formula to soak the rich when you did to score political points to spend on social services um, and then you win elections. And that's mm -hmm. that's just like, that was their standard playbook. They abandoned that playbook uh, in the years of neoliberalism when they started losing all the time. I mean, they won <laughs> presidential elections here and there, uh, but, they, but they got utterly destroyed both um, at the congressional level, which they used to dominate utterly in American politics, um, and at the state legislatures where, where they're really just kind of totally decimated and Republicans control all over the place. And it's because they abandoned that kind of very simple premise that most mm -hmm. people like it when you soak the rich, most people like it when you give them money, and most people 
like a winner, and that's how you win <laughs> by doing that. So yeah. So I wonder if Biden's just remembering his old kind of '70s era liberal、uh, brain, and just has like been asleep throughout the years of. <laughs> the the like thirty years since then, yeah. Yeah.、Um, I I share your、uh, sort of confusion over Biden's、uh, seeming sudden zeal to raise capital gains taxes because,、uh, you know, like I sort of mentioned earlier, it it actually has been a fairly bipartisan consensus since the dawn of neoliberalism to not do that. So Bill Clinton's administration famously slashed capital gains taxes. Like I said,、uh, the Obama administration did raise. Them, but was like very clear that like we're not going to go further than Reagan, you know, like that that famous stalwart of the progressive movement.、Um, <laughs> so so yeah, just to just to echo what you said,、um, the fact that Biden is kind of taking this turn uh, uh, is is heartening, and also makes me wonder like. If it's you know what you said that he just has blacked out everything,、uh, bef- you know that happened after the seventies,、mm-hmm. or is there somebody in his administration or somebody close to it that is more influential than we know? Yeah, I mean,、uh, you know, last week I did a, a my decode on Secretary Janet, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's proposal to do a global minimum corporate tax, which again would be, like would be a remarkable、uh, reordering of the global economic order. Which was not on the agenda at all in the campaign. I mean, Biden did not campaign on any of this stuff,、um, and uh, so I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's if it's someone within the、uh, the administration.、Um, I don't know if there's a kind of、um, I want to say maybe like ideological reordering in amongst certain sectors of the ruling class after、mm-hmm. you know after a decade plus of post two thousand eight. I don't know exactly what it is. I don't know what's going on because we have we we don't have a, a strong labor movement pushing this.、Um, we you know there is the, there was the Bernie campaign which you know probably had its effect.、Um, I suspect books like Piketty's Capital had had some effect as well in changing kind of the political what's what's politically possible or or the the thinking around this kind of these kind of issues.、Mm-hmm. Uh, but it just Biden seems like the last possible person you could have ever predicted、right. to. To be pushing this without anyone else, like it's not like the you know it's not like there's the Democrats in Congress. There's not this huge, massive popular wave or anything like that. It's just kind of he's just kind of proposing it. I mean,、right. it's unclear whether it's anything is going to really pass because because the makeup of the Senate is still what it is. But、mm-hmm. but I just find it I find it kind of strange. Yeah. Something I've been thinking about just over the course of the pandemic is the is is、um, did the pandemic do anything to kind of like. Open up politicians to more social spending.、Um, I think in a lot of ways we can see that it did.、Uh, deficit hawks definitely shut up for a while.、Um, I remember at the start of the pandemic, you know, before any stimulus packages had passed, even libertarians were like, "I guess we have to do something." <laughs>、um, and I, I just, you know, on the subject of wealth and capital gains taxes, I just keep going back to the fact that billionaires collectively made over what, like a trillion dollars、yeah. in wealth. Just during the pandemic, from stock market fluctuations. I mean, that, if anything, should be you know reason alone to try to find some way to tax some of that wealth. I think so. You know, I don't want to say like, oh, like the the pandemic just opened everybody's eyes, but I wonder if it has provided a kind of opportunity for you know progressives and the left to, I don't know, roll back decades of austerity. 
Well, maybe maybe the uh, the Trump accelerationists on the left were right because I think uh, <laughs> I'm kind of joking, but the the CARES the CARES Act. Um, All right, which, which, Brandon. Re- right, exactly. We do love her. We will never speak ill of Susan Sarandon on this program. But um, the the CARES Act, which uh, which was implemented by a Republican and mm-hmm. uh, a Republican uh, Congress, really just gave people money. Right. That was that was that that was the central plank of it i mean there was obviously this this huge give out to uh to corporations as well but like at the end of the day they did give uh two thousand dollar checks to to regular people and i suspect that that also had a tremendous effect in in reordering what the politics of what's possible Mm -hmm. um because because it just it, it was seen that that was probably the reason why Trump did better than expected uh, in the election in November mm-hmm, is just that mm-hmm. there was a massive stimulus. I mean, it was right. it was the, the, the one time checks, but also the unemployment insurance, which was huge. I mean, people. Yeah. Like, I mean, there was a significant poverty reduction yeah. um, on the back of the CARES Act. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's kind of we, we live in a very strange time politically. And I guess mm-hmm. it's just that we're we seem to be exiting uh, a consensus mm-hmm. and and we're in this kind of weird transitional phase in which everything is kind of scrambled and we don't know what the new consensus will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also just want to quickly mention to add on to that, uh, the stimulus, you know, cutting people checks, uh, increasing the stimulus, increasing unemployment, those all polled extremely, extremely well across like the entire population. And I'm talking Democrats, Republicans, and independents, everybody. Uh, and so, you know, I, I I think that maybe the writing on the wall was just hard for politicians to miss this time. I mean, I know yeah. that they are famously out of touch. They don't give a shit what working people think. Uh, but perhaps this time it was, you know, a combination of trying to do the opposite of what they perceived Trump had done and also just sort of gauging which way the political winds were blowing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Jen, lest it seem like we are riding with Biden too hard, um, there is a whole bunch of malarkey coming out of the Biden administration in the realm of foreign policy. And that's what's going to be my decode today. Um, the, second, the subject will be Cuba, uh, because we saw big news in Cuba this week as Raul Castro, who had been leading the, the Cuban Communist Party since 2006, announced that he was stepping down. Raul Castro has announced his resignation as head of Cuba's ruling Communist Party, putting an end to six decades of rule in the country by members of the Castro family. Raul, who took over as president from his brother Fidel in 2008, has said he is passing leadership to a new generation. As for me, my task as first secretary of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Cuba ends with the satisfaction of having fulfilled my duty and with confidence in the future of the country. It's hard to overstate just how important this is. Raul Castro and his much more famous brother, Fidel, enjoyed an incredible amount of personal prestige and legitimacy in Cuba for their role in overthrowing the tyrannical regime of the dictator Fulgencio Batista in 1959 in one of the most remarkable revolutions in the 20th century. The new guy, Miguel Diaz-Canel, won't be able to claim that mantle of legitimacy as he is the first Cuban leader who was not part of the ragtag group of guerrillas who overthrew Batista from their base in the Sierra Maestra. 
The country's top position will be now filled by Miguel Díaz-Canel, who has served as Cuba's president for the past three years. He is a party loyalist who has advocated reform of the ailing economy without altering Cuba's one-party system. He has been called the Richard Gere of Cuba by his supporters because, well, you know, he's a pretty handsome fellow, if I do say so myself. But Díaz-Canel takes over as Cuba is in the midst of a very deep economic crisis. Cubans are living through their most serious economic crisis since the fall of the Soviet Union. This island's been lashed not only by the pandemic, but also by powerful new sanctions that the Trump administration put in place. Improving the economy is the island's main political challenge. But the mood here in Havana is that more than anything any Cuban leader can do, improved economic future, hopes and dreams, run through improved relations with the United States. They run through improved relations with the United States because Cuba's economy shrank by 11% after the Trump administration reversed Obama's policies and reimposed economic sanctions on the island. So really, if you care about the welfare of the Cuban people, you really need to pressure the Biden administration to re-reverse Trump's policies and go back to his former boss's policy of detente with Cuba. Well, a journalist asked the State Department for, Biden, for the Biden administration's reaction to the news in Cuba, and this is what they got. I, I, what I would say is, of course, it is for the Cuban people uh, to speak to the results of uh, the Cuban Party Congress. Um, we have spoken uh, about our uh, review of our uh, Cuba policy, um, which remains ongoing. Um, but uh, we know, of course, that will be governed um, by two principles. First, uh, support for democracy and human rights. Uh, will be at the core uh, of those efforts. Uh, and we will seek to empower uh, the Cuban people uh, to determine their own future. Um, and second, uh, Americans, uh, as we've said, are uh, tend to be the best ambassadors uh, for um, freedom uh, in Cuba. I don't have anything to add um, about the, the, the change um, that has been announced. Again, um, it's for the Cuban people to speak to the results of their party congress. America are the best ambassadors for freedom in Cuba. So there you have it. Instead of words of rapprochement, Biden's State Department is continuing Trump's hawkish position towards Cuba. I think that many liberals and progressives have been surprised by this. Obama's top foreign policy advisor, Ben Rhodes, tweeted that, quote, so far, Biden has been completely indistinguishable from Trump on Cuba policy and messaging. The Biden administration has not indicated that it wants to lift the economic sanctions that are crippling Cuba. It also hasn't removed Cuba from the list of state sponsors of terrorism, a policy that Trump implemented just before he left office. The Trump administration, certainly the State Department, very busy in these final days. Uh, let's start with Cuba. Uh, we now know that it is back on the U.S.'s list of state sponsors of terrorism. Now, this is according to officials at the State Department who say that this decision was made because of Havana's, quote, continued support of Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro. Now, the question is, why? I mean, you would think it would be the easiest thing in the world for Biden to just say, orange man bad, and I'm going to go back to the good policies of my good friend Barack Obama. Well, for one thing, it looks like Biden and his people are reacting to their poor showing in Florida in last year's presidential election in which Trump defied the polling and won pretty comfortably. Florida was a tremendous victory. Miami-Dade County key to Trump's Florida victory. It's home to a large number of conservative Latinos, unique in the state and country. 
The conventional wisdom is that because there's a lot of Cuban-Americans in Miami-Dade, Democrats get punished for appearing soft on communism. Good to go down as one of the most progressive presidents in American history. A flood of political ads tying Biden to socialists struck fear in many Miami-Dade Latinos who'd escaped communist regimes in Cuba and Venezuela. People that like me that was born in, under a socialist regime, we don't want that happening in the United States. Now, it's worth pointing out that Obama won Florida, including Miami-Dade, two times, despite his softness towards the Castros. So let's just say that the conventional wisdom may not be that wise. But the other major factor is the presence of one Bob Menendez at the top of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Menendez is a Cuban-American senator from New Jersey who miraculously survived a pretty serious corruption case to win re-election. And according to Politico, this headline reads, The road to Joe Biden's foreign policy runs through Bob Menendez. In the lead, in the, in the article, it writes, if Biden thinks he can make foreign policy decisions without consulting New Jersey's Robert Menendez, he's got another thing coming. He's got another thing coming. And Bob Menendez did not like Obama's policy towards Cuba. Reaction from the highest ranking Cuban-American elected official in the country and political thorn in Obama's side was swift and predictable. Before a dramatic wall of pictures of former Cuban political prisoners, Senator Bob Menendez blasted the administration for today's announcement. It is totally unacceptable for the President of the United States to reward a dictatorial regime with a historic vista when human rights abuses endure and democracy continues to be shunned. So Biden is adopting a hawkish policy towards Cuba, and indeed, he is adopting a hawkish policy towards all of Latin America, including Venezuela. Biden's Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has continued the Trump policy of recognizing Juan Guaido as the rightful leader of Venezuela, and just yesterday tweeted out that he spoke with Ecuador's new right-wing president, Guillermo Lasso, about ways in which the two countries could work together to, quote, restore democracy in Venezuela. Now, what does this have to do with Cuba? Well, a lot. Because of the U.S. embargo, Venezuela is Cuba's main economic partner in the region. In fact, it was Hugo Chavez and his Bolivarian Revolution that helped Cuba get out of the economic crisis that it faced after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. As the U.S. waged decades of economic warfare and outright terrorism on Cuba, it relied on the Soviet Union for economic and military support. And when that went away after the Soviet collapse, Cuba went into a deep crisis known as the Special Period that lasted throughout the 90s. That's when you started to see a lot of migrants come to Miami in small rafts. The crisis was, of course, exacerbated by the policies of the United States. According to historian Richard Gott, quote, just when Cuba might have benefited from the end of the Cold War and a possible relaxation of the American attitude, the U.S. government tightened the economic screws. Successive presidents were to increase the pressure, seeking to crush Cuba's attempts to achieve economic independence and hoping to overthrow the island's leader. The perceived crisis in revolutionary legitimacy was the staple material of every visiting journalist, yet the predicted outcome failed to materialize. The regime fought back and Castro soldiered on regardless. Years later, in 1998, Time magazine noted his pride at defying World predictions of his imminent demise as satisfying a triumph to him as any that went before. Outside observers had jumped to the conclusion that seemed obvious at the time, but proved profoundly misplaced. They assumed too readily that Cuba would fall like the countries in Eastern Europe. In doing so, they misread the attitude of not just the Cuban leadership, but the Cubans themselves. And Venezuela and Hugo Chavez 
provided a lifeline for Cuba in their time of need, mostly through cheap oil, which allowed the economy to get back on its feet. And as you well know by now, the U.S. has waged a vicious economic war on Venezuela, which has crippled their economy, and that has had its effects on Cuba. According to Andres Pertierra in Jacobin, quote, in, ad, in addition to worsening relations with Washington, Cuba has been hit hard by Venezuela's economic collapse. As Reuters noted last year, merchandise trade between the two countries had plummeted by 70% since 2014. Cuba depends on trade with Venezuela in large part because the latter is a major source of cheap oil. While Cuba extracts some of its oil for domestic use, it doesn't produce as much as it needs. Venezuelan oil satisfies Cuban domestic demand, and Caracas allows Cuba to re-export some of the oil at market value, which is an important source of hard currency. So with the United States leaning as hard as it ever has on Cuba, the outlook for Miguel Díaz-Canel is a difficult one. But there are glimmers of hope. You see, most governments in the world derive their legitimacy from economic growth. This is true whether it's the United States, in which it's understood as conventional wisdom that the main factor in deciding a presidential election is whether the economy is doing well or not. Or in places like China, where the Chinese Communist Party relies on the breakneck economic growth it has achieved in the last 40 years to maintain the support of its people. But in Cuba, that is only partially true. Partially true. For decades, a huge source of the government's legitimacy, as we mentioned, was Fidel Castro's personal charisma and prestige. That is true. But it also derived its legitimacy on the social services it provided for its people, namely free quality education and health care. And on that front, Cuba is truly remarkable. Its response to the COVID-19 pandemic has been nothing short of spectacular. Just look at this chart. Just 547 deaths from COVID. And not just that, it is well on its way to vaccinating its entire population. Now to the remarkable effort by the small island nation of Cuba to produce its own COVID-19 vaccine. As large and wealthy countries both produce and consume the majority of vaccines around the world, Cuba is working to develop its own solution for its population with five vaccine candidates now in development. This is the result of decades of investment in public health by the Cuban Communist Party. Cuba is an isolated island nation, unique amongst its neighbors in Latin America. Cuba has a long history of investment in, in health, especially primary health care. Um, it's largely a medical model. Uh, they station doctors all over the world for, for many decades now. Um, and they also have a, a long history of vaccine development, especially for the childhood vaccines that we all are familiar with, measles, pertussis, tetanus, etc. And this is not just for the benefit of the Cuban people. Cuba has used its medical innovations as a tool for foreign policy and economic development. Sarah Kozame writes in Jacobin, quote, Cuba's commitment to international solidarity has also paid off. Cuban medical internationalism is now the island's principal export, bringing in $6.4 billion in 2018. This practice goes back a long way, well before it was a source of national income. In 1960, Cuba dispatched a disaster response brigade to Chile following a devastating earthquake. It then sent doctors to Algeria during the country's independence struggle and later to North Vietnam and Central Africa. By the end of the 1960s, Cuban medics were working in 12 different countries. Over the decades that followed, Cuba expanded its programs for overseas medical assistance, training tens of thousands of foreign students to become doctors at no charge. In many countries, Cuban doctors helped eliminate diseases like polio, malaria, and dengue, saving thousands of lives. 
while the U.S. is fighting to protect vaccine patents so that its pharmaceutical companies can profit off of the COVID vaccine, Cuba is working with beleaguered nations like Venezuela and Iran to get their vaccine out. But back to Miguel Díaz-Canel. Not that much is really known about him other than that he's been a dutiful servant for his entire life. Uh, most people assume that he will pursue some policies of economic liberalization in the vein of China or Vietnam. The Spanish newspaper El Mundo dubbed him Cuba's Deng Xiaoping, the Chinese leader who took over after Mao and led the transition to the hybrid economic model that we see in China today. Now, economic reforms are surely needed, but he should be careful not to threaten the social programs that have delivered major social outcomes for the Cuban people. And for God's sake, Biden needs to change his policy towards Cuba. But given his awful track record so far, that doesn't seem too likely. So, Nando, I think that what you've just laid out is actually further evidence that Biden still thinks it's 1970. Uh, (laughs) It's not just on the domestic policy front, but, uh, you know, it's still 1970. We just we just did the expansion of this embargo thing. Biden is just trying to carry out the promise of that. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it's 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 interesting because, like, as we were talking about his domestic policies, um, you know, are surprisingly good. I, I guess we, we could say that they're better than we would expect. Um, his foreign policy has been surprisingly bad. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's just been totally indistinguishable from Trump's. And that's just, that's not even like, it's becoming kind of a more mainstream uh, position. It's not just not just like a left critic position. Um, but, but like we said, domestically for his political fortunes, uh, that's probably the right mix in that no one gives a shit about foreign policy. At least you don't suffer a penalty for... Uh, being bad on foreign policy unless you just, you know, as long as you kind of avoid get getting a lot of people killed in a war. Um, but uh, um, you can kill other people, just not. Right, not right, right, right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, um, while pursuing uh, popular economic policies at home, that's probably a winning uh, formula. But it's 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 no less depressing because, um, yeah, I mean, just everywhere from Cuba to all over Latin America to mm-hmm. Iran and Russia and China, like he's just pursued like a very surprisingly um, hawkish foreign policy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I also want to add, since this is Jacobin, we have to stand Cuba a little bit. Uh, I, you know, yeah. you, you did not you did not mention their lung cancer vaccine, which I think is truly I incredible. Um, uh, I, I feel like this was big news like a few years ago and a couple of right wing yeah. news outlets came out and they're like, well, it's not really a vaccine. It doesn't actually like do that much. Uh, but lo and behold, uh, you know, scientists say that it's pretty effective. Um, I believe U.S. scientists are now working with Cuban scientists to try to develop it further, um, mm. or at least they were. You know, during the during the like end of the Obama period, I think. So, who yeah. I, I actually don't know what happened um, after. You know, once Trump took office, and you know now Biden seems to be carrying that through, as you said. Um, and I also want to mention, so Cuba in in the '60s, as like I'm sure a lot of people know, had this really amazing literacy campaign where they basically, yeah. like Castro was like, we just need everybody to be able to read. And so they had this vast network where they sent out, you know, T 
teachers, volunteers, just like everybody uh, to go to like the far reaches of rural Cuba and, you know, other underserved areas and to like expand this program of literacy. Their literacy rate is now 100 percent, basically. Um, and much like the medical, uh, the, the doctors, they export that to other countries. They yeah. export that program to, you know, other nations in the Caribbean. Um, I believe that they helped Haiti do something similar with their literacy program. Um, so Cuba rules. Well, it's 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 also just like the um, quintessential example to me of the effect of propaganda here yeah. in the United States. Yeah. Um, you know, I, we just remember you mentioned the literacy program, which Bernie Sanders uh, praised in in his right. campaign for president, and like the U.S. media had like an absolute freakout. You know, Jake Tapper was just like, you know, how could you, how could you even like say one positive thing about such a murderous dictator? But like, you know, it's just been decades and decades of of, of propaganda. I mean, mm -hmm. and you share a funny news story, Kale. I don't know if you have it um, from Telemundo and NBC News uh, that talked about the uh, the 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 problem of exploding croquetas in, in Cuba and just how people like, it's just like I mean it's just like how is this like how is this published in, in, a, in a US news outlet yeah about, like uh, um, you know that there's this scourge of exploding croquetas I I inside of Cuba um, but like stories like this are commonplace in mm -hmm. US media and you know like you mentioned that they you know they've the, these these gains of the Cuban revolution that they that they often export around the world like doctors or teachers and things like that um, in the U.S. media is usually framed as some sort of spy operation. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, that that they're like these these doctors are also like, you know, these, collecting uh, intel on like. Yeah, collecting <laughs> intel. Uh, yeah. You know, wherever they go. And it's just like, man, it's 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 really remarkable just how the media here in the United States falls in line with whatever uh, is the foreign policy goals of the United States. And it's and it's and it's never more clear in than than in with Cuba. Yeah, I uh, that that reminds me when when Fidel Castro died, you know, a couple years ago, um, there was obviously this sort of outpouring of uh, media interpretation from the angle that you're describing, where it was like, oh, well, like, it seems like an evil dictator. There's one less evil dictator on, on the face of the earth. Um, and uh, I the one that sticks out in my mind in particular was a BuzzFeed listicle that was, it, do you remember this? It was something like, no. oh my God, like all of these cute Latina grandmas are celebrating the death of an evil dictator. And it was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was that clip that went viral of that like show on Netflix of, you know, uh, this Cuban-American family uh, going crazy because the the boyfriend shows up with a Che Guevara shirt oh. um you know that that was that was really funny and it's just like it's it's all crazy to me that like the you know the United States has a military base on Cuba called mm -hmm. Guantanamo Bay mm -hmm. which they use not just like as a th constant threat to Cuba I mean imagine having a U.S. military base on your s small little island but also they use to commit heinous human rights abuses by like just, you know, extraordinary rendition and keeping people without trial and, you know, forever, essentially, like, there's no hope for those people to ever get out, let alone get a trial. Um, so it's just the, the, the brazen hypocrisy, just, I, I can't, I can't, I, I can't put my mind, I can't put mm -hmm. my mind in that frame, that frame of mind. It was like, right. well, no, that's, that's, right. that's just fine. What are you talking about? Right, you know, right. Like, these, these things are not inconsistent in my head. 
So, so, so yeah. I actually have another question for you because you, yeah. you, so prior to us going live, you mentioned that you are in Miami currently um, and, and, and you, you had sort of touched on this um, in your segment, but is, is a kind of sympathy for Cuba really such political poison in Miami or in Florida as, as, Honestly, you know, as people want to make it out to be? I think it's definitely overplayed in mm -hmm. that um, the younger generation of Cuban Americans in Miami are not as fanatical about, uh, you know, being anti-Castro. Um, the the thing, though, that has happened recently, I mean, like, like I said, Obama won two, two elections yeah. in Florida um, and, and, you know, won big in Miami-Dade, uh, despite, you know, all his rhetoric on Cuba. And, you know, he said the exact same thing Bernie Sanders said and suffered no political penalty for it. Um, the thing that has changed in recent times has been Venezuela and mm -hmm. the Venezuela thing has kind of recharged the, you know, anti-left animus that existed in Miami in certainly in the 90s when I was growing up. The Venezuela thing has become the dominant political issue and they kind of just lump the Cuba thing with Venezuela. Right. Uh, but, but really, the Venezuela thing is the driver. I mean, that is the it gets people very, very riled up here. I mean, it's it's like, you know, it's seen as like this, you know, the, the most serious political issue by far. Mm -hmm. And then the Cuba thing just kind of laps itself onto it. Um, but in terms of like, you know, those radio hosts that you always hear about in Miami who are just like constantly uh, ranting about Castro, like I, I suspect that that, if that has, has dwindled dramatically. I mean, very few people remember you know, there's very few people around who remember the revolution, you know, mm -hmm. that they just, you know, and um, the younger people just either don't care or like join DSA at this point, you know, so. <laughs> right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to um, say, because, you know, the big the big story that came out of Florida in 2020, of course, was was this whole this whole, um, you know, weird dynamic where Florida went for Trump, but at the same time, like a supermajority passed a $15 minimum wage ballot initiative. Yeah. And I'm not saying that, like, you know, the $50 minimum wage ballot initiative had like Cuba or had like, you know, Fidel's face stamped on it or anything like that. Um, but again, like the- Oh, they the, tried. They tried. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Didn't they? Yeah. They did. Yeah. They did try and it didn't work. But uh, yeah. no, and, and the Lincoln Project did, did a funny thing in which it started comparing Trump to Castro. Like that was like, <laughs> you know, what you, you don't like Castro, but <laughs> Trump is like Castro. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How I, I I don't know, but uh, but that was the that was the sort of Lincoln Project uh, line of attack in yeah. Florida against Trump. But that mm -hmm. didn't work either. Um, it's just yeah, it's I mean, there, Florida is a very weird state in many many ways. Um, the 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 Democrats here are just some of the worst Democrats you could ever you could ever imagine. I mean, there there is no kind of there. It's just, I mean, they ran Charlie Crist. Uh, <laughs> couple years ago and he was a republican like he was yeah. literally republican and he just switched parties to run um as a democrat and it's like you can't do that and 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 ever hope to win um so the the democratic party brand in florida is very very tarnished um yeah. in many ways but yeah yeah i, I don't know it's just i mean they, they keep on losing these gimmick these gimme elections uh i mean they they lost to rick scott like my god yeah I mean, he was the most <laughs> unpopular governor in america and they still lost the senate race um to him so yeah um yeah yeah. Well, Jen, um, what's going on with uh, Asians? <laughs> what's going on from what's, Latinos what's to happening? Asians? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so for, for my segment today, I want to talk a little bit about um, 
the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes, which of course we've all been hearing about over the last month or so. Um, and, and I have some thoughts. Uh, so earlier this week, uh, the Senate passed legislation to address the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. So this was a rare instance of bipartisan consensus in the Senate. And in fact, the only Senator to vote against the bill was Republican Josh Hawley. When the legislation passed, Senator Maisie Hirano, who was lead sponsor of the bill, said in a statement, at a time when the AAPI community is under siege, this bill is an important signal that Congress is taking anti-Asian racism and hatred seriously. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned, like a lot of other Asian Americans, the subject of anti-Asian violence has been on my mind a lot lately. And if you follow the news, especially if you live in a city like New York or San Francisco, where these attacks are taking place, you've probably heard reports like this. at least the seventh attack on an Asian American in recent days across the city. 36-year-old Asian man, sources say, stabbed in the back in an unprovoked attack. Another Asian-owned business in Fairfax County was targeted for crime. It could have been my grandparents or my family member or anyone, you know, so that's why that's why we have to step up again and come, come together, join as one. It almost seems like racism is kind of coming back for some reason. Kung flu! Two other victims in Oakland's Chinatown. And now the attention is on on us, but this is nothing new. We demand justice. America is a melting pot. We shouldn't be hating on each other. We should love one another and love our neighbors, love our community. Hello, I'm Vicki Wynn. Thank you for joining us. For the past year, many of us have been concerned about two viruses, the coronavirus and the racism virus. We're not only worried about our health, but our safety as well, with reports of attacks against Asian Americans, both physical and verbal, dominating our social media pages. So things took an especially tragic turn last month, of course, when a gunman opened fire on multiple massage parlors in Atlanta, Georgia, and killed eight people, including six Asian women. Not long after that, an Asian woman in New York was brutally beaten in broad daylight while her attacker shouted anti-Asian slurs and several bystanders appeared to do nothing. All of these attacks have been extremely upsetting, and as a result, we've heard multiple politicians, commentators, and activists expressing support for, quote, the Asian American community or the AAPI community. Now, I recognize that on one level, Asian American community is just the current politically correct way of saying Asian people. But I also think it's important to look at what the term community obscures, especially because politicians and other elites so often conflate concepts like constituency and community with racial identity. So first of all, the term Asian American is a census category that encompasses a wildly fragmented group of people. Today, that includes more than 20 million people from 45 ethnic groups speaking over 100 languages. Two-thirds of Asians in the U.S. and four out of five adults are first-generation immigrants. Given the staggering degree of ethnic and linguistic diversity, it's not much of a surprise that around 85% of people of Asian descent do not identify as, quote, Asian American or AAPI. They identify by their ethnicity, whether that's Vietnamese, Pakistani, or what have you. What's even more significant than this vast ethnic diversity is the fact that Asians are currently the most economically unequal racial group in the US. So according to the Pew Research Center, from 1970 to 2016, 
the gap in the standard of living between Asians near the top and the bottom of the income ladder nearly doubled, and the distribution of income among Asians transformed from being one of the most equal to being the most unequal among America's major racial and ethnic groups. Today, a rich Asian household is over 168 times more wealthy than a poor Asian household. So the point here is that no matter how well-intentioned it may be, a concept like Asian American community has almost no material reality. You're talking about a category that includes undocumented immigrants working as home care aides, billionaire real estate developers, Silicon Valley tech professionals, small business owners, their minimum wage employees, and all kinds of people in between. What this means when it comes to the recent spike in assaults on Asians is that the people who have been most likely to speak on behalf of the so-called community are often very far removed from the crimes that are taking place. It's important to note here that while a number of the most shocking attacks on Asians in recent months, of course, have been explicitly racially motivated, in many other instances, it's been difficult to disentangle the assaults from a more general increase in violent crime during the pandemic. As the journalist Zed Jelani points out in Newsweek, over the past year, we've seen a massive increase in violent crime, particularly shootings and homicides. In many instances, working class Asian Americans are likely being impacted by a crime wave, a crime wave that is rocking American cities and impacting many people of lower socioeconomic status. So many of the working class Asian victims of recent assaults, which include restaurant and convenience store workers, uh, were robbed or mugged in addition to possibly being targeted because of their race. So this is something that's, of course, way less likely to happen in wealthy neighborhoods. And I think that focusing exclusively on the racial element of many of these attacks with little or no attention to class leads to some curious conclusions. So after the Atlanta shootings, one Chinese American executive who works at the management firm Deloitte, where the executive where the average executive salary is over $200,000 a year, told the New York Times, I don't think I've ever felt that degree of physical vulnerability. No matter how much money one makes, no matter how successful one is, it's the reality of being an Asian in the US. But the truth is that even amidst an uptick in hate crimes, a Deloitte executive is not as vulnerable to physical violence as a massage parlor worker, precisely because of her socioeconomic position. It's of course a good thing that professional class people are taking note of these assaults and feel personally invested in stopping them. The problem is when the political class and the commentariat then use racial identity to promote solutions that are entirely disconnected from the concerns of most working people. So for instance, in the wake of the Atlanta shootings, Senators Tammy Duckworth and Maisie Hirano threatened to block Biden's cabinet nominees unless he, unless he promised to appoint more Asian Americans to high-level White House positions. This sentiment was echoed by a Washington Post journalist who tweeted about Biden's cabinet picks, none of the 15 are Asian American. Now, I personally find it a little grotesque to use a mass shooting of Asian women in their workplace to bargain for influence over elite government positions, especially when we already know that the type of racial representation that Duckworth and Hirano are advocating is extremely hollow. For example, let's take a look at Elaine Chow, an Asian American woman who served as Trump's Secretary of Transportation, and prior to that, served as George W. Bush's Secretary of Labor. 
Now, as part of uh, as part of Bush's cabinet, Chow ran an extremely pro-business Department of Labor that frequently swept employer safety violations under the rug and all but turned a blind eye to rampant wage theft. In other words, Chow's policies and protocols as labor secretary probably did more to harm working class Asians than, quote, not seeing themselves in Bush's cabinet. Furthermore, if most Asians cared about seeing themselves in the White House more than they cared about things like healthcare, wages, and education, how do you explain the fact that during the 2020 primaries, far more Asian voters cast ballots for Bernie Sanders and for Joe Biden than for Andrew Yang? Though, as I said earlier, Asians are by no means a monolith, when surveyed, the majority of Asians do say they, they favor bigger government in the form of increased spending on public programs, higher taxes on the rich, and universal health care. So the irony of politicians' focus on so-called racial representation is that if they, truly run, if they truly wanted to represent Asians, they could do so by working to implement these programs. And as it turns out, these are also the types of social investments that have the potential to boost public safety by reducing poverty and ameliorating some of the social causes of crime. If we're serious about stopping AAPI hate, as the saying goes, we have to be clear-eyed about not just the economic position of most of the victims of violent crime, but also who invokes the term community and why. The increase in racially motivated attacks on Asians during the pandemic is a deeply disturbing trend that has understandably rattled people of all economic backgrounds. But we cannot let these tragedies become yet another opportunity for elites to push empty or self-serving politics in the name of racial representation. Mm. You know, that that reminds me um, a lot of the uh, the sort of very heated discussions that happen amongst Latinos over the term Latinx or Latino. And it just your segment reminded me of that because the vast majority of people in what we would call like the Latino community um, prefer to be identified by their, you know, like I'm Dominican or yeah. I'm Puerto Rican or yeah. I'm Colombian or whatever, you know, like they, the, the, this sort of um, the, this kind of catch all term, which I guess would, you know, serve some sort of political, use in, because they're strength in numbers um in a way also just the obscures like what you said the the vast differences not just culturally but you know what what does a uh colombian oligarch have to do with like a migrant worker in <laughs> south texas like literally nothing i mean they speak the same language that's about it mm -hmm. um and so uh, maybe like this maybe they like similar music <laughs> but um, you know maybe. what is that really yeah maybe <laughs> so but what is that 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 that's meaningless and yeah in, in so many ways and yeah that's and, that's uh, really interesting because i actually saw that about the the you know the reports that you're talking about about you know latinos not, uh preferring to to not be called latino let alone latinx um but actually yeah. you know uh, identifying more with their ethnic background um, because precisely because when I was reading that, I was like, hey, just like Asians. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the I mean, and AAPI, I mean, every time I read it, I just it's I, not real. I, I Don't worry. The, I think of the the AARP, like the, the retired <laughs> people. Uh, it just sounds like. A, are they older or are they it, Asian? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but. Uh, um, no, but it's 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 just I mean, that is the name of the game, right? In mm -hmm. in, in in today's day and age is mm -hmm. to um, 
racialize everything, essentialize everything to to race, and that yeah. has such an obscure, like in what I think was a, maybe a well-meaning attempt to clarify certain things. Whenever whenever this kind of trend started, has become much more obscuring than yeah. the, than than it was in the past, and it's yeah. just you know it it flattens um, so much. I mean, you know, the 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 statistics about inequality amongst um, Asian Americans were really remarkable. I had never seen that before, but it, mm -hmm. you know, it makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense for those people to want to flatten those differences. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To, to wrap themselves in that mantle, to be able to flatten those differences, to protect their, their own position. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, in the sixties, when the term Asian American was like literally created, like literally a handful of like, Ivy League students who were interested in third world solidarity. I mean, you know, power to them. That's great. They kind of came up with this term because they were like, well, like there aren't that many of us. And, you know, obviously, like we come from different countries and different backgrounds, but we think it's important to, you know, sort of form a cohesive identity as kind of, I guess you might say, a strategic essentialism, right? Like only when we form this identity will we be able to fight for our political interests. And that may have been compelling at the time, or I think it probably was compelling at the time. Um, but, you know, as, as you just said, what we've seen now is that there's such diversity, um, not just ethnically, but, but more importantly by income and wealth in this group that what's what ends up happening is uh you know when when you take a term like asian american or i guess even latino you know what ends up happening is the people who are the rich people in that category end up speaking for everybody they end up pushing mm -hmm. their favored policies forward and i so like you said the, these these terms which may come from a good place or may, may come out of good intentions end up obscuring more than they reveal yeah. i think that's absolutely mm -hmm. right the other weird thing that that happens is that there's a kind of assumptions that 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 are made about the um, the political inclinations of of these groups. I mean, I mean, the, the famous yeah. example right now is the is, you know, Latinos breaking for Trump pretty dramatically <laughs> and unexpectedly um, in the last election. I mean, it was just not just Cuban-Americans or Venezuelan-Americans. I will I will say there's some there's some early evidence that lots of Asians shifted to Trump, too. So maybe maybe we can get into the Trump shift yeah. <laughs> at, at some yeah. point late no. down the line. That's that's a whole different can of worms. No. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's 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 fascinating. But uh, how about we bring on our guest? What do you think? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Well, our guest today <laughs> is Ben Burgess. He is a philosophy professor. He also writes a Jacobin a lot. He's the host of the podcast Give Them an Argument, which I appear on once a month to talk about the Sopranos. He's also the author of Give Them an Argument: Logic for the Left and the brand new spanking new book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns: A Critique of the contemporary left. You can find the link for that book in the description. You can also see it uh, on your screen. Uh, ben, welcome to the show. Thank you for being on. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, ben, who are we canceling today? Just kidding. Yeah, let's cancel someone. <laughs> I'm kind of I mean, I, I, you want me to start up or, you know, it's, uh, no, I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm excited, of course, as I said, to, to talk to my favorite Latinx and uh, AAPI. Uh, be very careful. I'm from Spain, and uh, you're going to get me in trouble. Uh, I am not included in the catch-all term Latin Latinx. Is there some Latin Spanx, you know, like term? That can, uh, that can there should be. Uh, I guess, it's, it's, you know, 
I mean, to the extent that this is debate is even like mind-numbingly boring, but like <laughs> Hispanic does count. You know, I guess I do count in Hispanic, but I do not count in Latino or or Latinx. Uh, but you know, what I am is an imperialist pig, and that's and that is one hundred percent true. Now, uh, you're ben, representing uh, the imperialist community. Yes, the imperialist community. There is literally dozens of us. Okay, you know, and, and it's about time that we're heard. Um, you know, Columbus, he was a hero, even though he was Italian. He flew under the Spanish flag. We're claiming him. Speaking These of Italians that claim Columbus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, uh, Ben, now I, 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 I want to ask you about uh, what we're just joking about cancel culture, because sure. there has been um, I mean, it's in the it's in it's discussed a lot. Um, there has been a sort of uh, fight back against mm -hmm. the concept of cancel culture. People mm -hmm. say it does not exist. Even some people that I consider uh, comrades and politically oh, on, on my side say that it doesn't exist. I personally find that baffling because I've just, I mean, just, just look around, but, um, Ben, how do you, how would you define it? Maybe that's a good place to start. Sure. So, uh, I think that what we call cancel culture and it's an imperfect term for what it's meant to describe. I did a, uh, Jacobin, uh, talk, uh, I think back then we we're calling talk something else about this, uh, last, uh, last year that people can check out and uh, an article, uh, for Jacobin called So You're Still Being Publicly Shamed, where I got into this. But I think that it's what we're really talking about are a cluster of cultural trends towards um, basically mutual surveillance and uh, hair trigger uh, denunciation, uh, which I think is really a disease of neoliberalism, I would argue, that it's something that happens because we live in a society where people are incredibly atomized. They often feel most connected to other people online. Uh, where most people correctly think that they're relatively powerless and if they can at least get somebody fired, uh, that, that gets them some sense of power uh, over something where we have intentionally addictive social media platforms, you know, that the for-profit corporations that, uh, that run them uh, want everybody to spend as much time staring at their phones as at all possible uh, and to have that little endorphin rush you get from... Uh, from likes and retweets, which uh, which could often be served uh, by being the first to sort of lead a pile on against somebody, and by the fact that most Americans, not that this phenomenon is by any means restricted to the United States, but this is its toxic heart, uh, uh, work in non-unionized workplaces uh, where doxing, for example, has has a real uh, like has a real terror for people, and you know, it, I mean, it, it would have other dangers anyway, but I mean, especially. Uh, given uh, how many Americans work in places where they can be fired uh, without cause anytime the boss is embarrassed by association with them. So I think that's a general problem that is a problem for the entire political spectrum. Um, I think that we could easily talk about lots of examples of right-wing uh, cancellations and probably even more, most of all, uh, examples, those sort of centrist liberal cancellations often directed uh, against the left. Uh, but what I find really unfortunate and you're kind of touching on is that a lot of my friends and comrades on the left, rather than saying, yeah, this is a very real problem. And look, the left is actually in a position to not just complain about it, you know, like sort of libertarians and centrists can, but to actually offer real solutions like enhanced protections uh, in the workplace, like nationalizing uh, these social media platforms so we can run them in a more reasonable way uh, rather than, than trying to, um, 
you know, rather than handling them the way that the current corporate, corporate overlords do, rather than doing that, they say, oh, it doesn't exist. And in fact, it seems to me that they often uh, kind of contradict themselves because they'll say both it doesn't exist, right? When they're dismissing concerns about it, they'll say it doesn't exist. And then in other contexts, they'll say, oh, it's actually, you know, really important that we hold people accountable uh, by, uh, by canceling them online that they'll they'll say oh this is you know this is you know the accountability and consequences and it, it always kind of skeezes me out because they when people start going on about accountability and consequences they kind of talk start sounding like a suburban republican who wants to lock up you know everybody who uh, who you know shoplifts mm-hmm. uh but uh but i think that you can't really have it both ways because if you say oh there's no such thing as cancel culture canceling is just criticism then how is that how is that accountability for anybody? How is that a consequence? Just being criticized, like we all know, I think the difference between criticism and hair trigger uh, mass denunciation, uh, especially when people try to invoke invoke consequences like employment, uh, that like just criticism wouldn't actually be a consequence for anything if you were really just criticizing what someone was saying rather than uh, trying to. Uh, to destroy their reputation, or rather than trying to uh, to run them, um, you know, run them out of their current job, or run them out of of whatever institution you want them to experience uh, consequences in. And last point, uh, like my focus in the book is really very specifically on the left, because even though I think this is something everybody does, uh, I it bothers me more. When it happens on the left, because one, I think it's counter solidaristic and, and really should be contrary to everything that we stand for, and uh, and two, I think that when when you kind of combine those general cultural trends with the specific pathologies of the left that I'm sure we'll get into, you get this really toxic brew that makes most of the people that we need to try to persuade in order to win them over to some kind of socialist project want to run screaming in the opposite direction because why would they want to have anything to do with people who act like this? So I, I think on that note, um, I, you know, I, when I was reading your book, I want to say, you know, I, I uh, like pretty much agreed with everything that you, you have to say about cancel culture and its relationship to the left. Um, but I am not on Twitter. Right. Um, and actually, you know, the reason why I'm not on Twitter is because of the dynamics that you discuss. Um, so, you know, that, you know, you know I'm not you saying- you would become the biggest canceler ever. <laughs> exactly, I just know that I would be denouncing left and right. No, I mean, like Twitter is like a horrible place, right? Um, yeah, but which is all to say, you know, when you identify these kinds of like um, uh, counterproductive tendencies, like I fully agree that they're there. However, when I was reading your book, I was like, well, like, isn't this still just mostly online? And like, of course, you know, you've already spoken a little bit about how that shades into real life. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I was reading, I was like, okay, but like, there's a lot of examples from like online and like not saying that's not real, but like, is this like, could this be solved just by, you know, like getting rid of social media or something? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Logging off. Should we all just log off? Um, But then actually last week, uh, an interesting thing happened in my neighborhood, coincidentally. Let's watch the video. Out of New York. We don't want you here. We don't want you here. We don't want you here. We don't want your fucking money. We don't want your fucking money. We don't want your fucking tuckeria. Owned by fucking white men. Owned by fucking white men. 
tip 30%. All right, so just as some context, <laughs> Ben's eyes are like very wide. Uh, what's going on in this video is there was a march in Brooklyn uh, after the Derek Chauvin verdict came in and a group of you know left-wing activists were going down Vanderbilt Avenue, stopped in front of this taqueria, which they say is owned by a white man, but the neighborhood chatter is that it's actually a Mexican-American family. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. They could be I white. Mean, they could be white. They could be white. We don't know. Let's just, I mean, even Mexicans if they were- Mexicans could be white. Mexicans this can be white. This is get very compl complicated. The, yeah, uh, I, I, I should just interject this. You know, I lived in South Florida for six and a half years. I knew tons of people from, from Latin America, you know, mm -hmm. who were like, you know, weird right-wing counter-revolutionaries, you know, who, who would definitely be insulted if you suggested that they weren't white. Right, right. yeah. <laughs> All right, so fair fair enough. Uh, but, you know, to, to the video that we just watched, um, basically this was an expression of, I guess, radical anti-gentrification sentiment. Uh, this, Ben, what do you make of this radical vanguard? What, what, what does this group of people say about some of the pathologies you talk about in your book? Uh, yeah, I, I'd say if the guy who was standing up there leading that chant isn't actually on the police payroll, then uh, then as as a as a matter of labor, you know, I'm a little upset on his behalf because he's doing all this service for them for free. Um, yeah, I, I, it's it's insane. I mean, like clearly, what really jumps out at me from that clip and from um, others I remember like that from uh, from last summer. Of, of people sort of uh, crowding in and uh, yelling in the faces of, uh, of outdoor diners and uh, demanding that they, they make some symbolic, you know, gesture of, uh, of support uh, is the same thing for that matter that I remember jumping out at me in uh, 2019, watching uh, the, uh, the infamous clips from the DSA convention that year. I'm a member of DSA uh, and, and don't plan on, on ever not being a member of it, uh, but that, Nobody who's involved in these things seems to have any part of their brain that thinks, hey, I wonder how people who aren't already on board are going to receive this. Like, I wonder how this is going to play with anybody who's not basically soaking in the subculture of a certain kind of left activism. Right. How like what is somebody in the wider world uh, going to make of this? I mean, somebody from any background in the wider world, just anybody who's not completely acculturated into the left going to make of it uh, when they see people uh, screaming, uh, we don't want you here at people who are just like ordinary people trying to eat at a Mexican restaurant uh, because the owner of the restaurant is uh, allegedly white. Uh, what are people going to make of it uh, when uh, when you see people at you know the DSA convention say nobody is allowed to clap because it's not impossible that out of five thousand you know delegates there, there are three of them that have some incredibly rare condition that makes them especially sensitive uh, to uh, to loud uh, to loud noises, and nobody's allowed to use the phrase "Hey guys" because it's uh, it's gendered language, uh, and what disturbs me is that they don't even seem to be thinking about it, which unfortunately I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, given one of the things that I try to trace in the book in terms of the trajectory of the left in the last several decades, which is that in the last few years, there have started to be some openings for uh, the radical left to uh, participate more in real world politics, most obviously the two Bernie campaigns, 
uh, the rise of DSA. Uh, and, you know, it's it's tentative, but, you know, the uh, the door of political possibility is at least starting to open a crack. Uh, but unfortunately, I think we have a lot of really bad habits left over from uh, the decades in which the left was wandering in uh, in exile when even decent social Democrats uh, like uh, like Bernie in the U.S. or, you know, Jeremy Corbyn in the U.K. Uh, were pretty obscure uh, backbenchers and anything more radical than that was completely off the table. And if you came up in that, it I think makes sense that you thought of radical politics not really as a serious project to try to change the world, which would, of course, involve trying to appeal to the broad mass of regular people who'd be completely alienated by stuff like this, uh, but as a symbolic thing, as a, as a way of symbolically taking a stand against all of the injustices of capitalism and imperialism uh, and everything else. And unfortunately, I think even a lot of uh, very young activists, you know, who have only recently, you know, started to uh, be involved in the left, uh, have really inherited that that mindset that it's it's really just about symbolically performing your opposition to uh, the uh, to the injustices of the system. And if that's all it is, it's very natural that you spend a lot of time interrogating other people's commitment. Right? Is everybody else really committed enough, or not? Uh, and that you spend a lot of time sort of fighting for credibility within uh, within a certain bubble or really trying to prove how hardcore you are. Um, like, I'm going to lead the chant against the, uh, against the Taqueria uh, <laughs> rather than thinking about how, can, how is it that we can uh, appeal to the broadest possible subset of the population, you know, the vast number of working class people that we'd have to appeal to in order to actually take power and carry out our program. So, uh, sorry, I want to follow up on that really quickly because you you wrote something really interesting in your book where, you know, you say something along the lines of, um, even if you are spending hours doing good work, you know, you're spending hours with your local DSA organizing, uh, but you go online for a couple minutes each day to do some canceling, uh, that's still ultimately detrimental to the left. And, you know, with the, <laughs> with, with the, you know, video that we just watched, like, what if those people are doing great organizing, you know, or, or actually maybe a better example is like, we've seen, you know, what, hundreds or thousands of protests over the last year and most of them have not like had crazy elements like that right um so i guess the question is you know if if there's a lot of good work going on uh you you make the argument in your book that a little bit of this bad behavior is still detrimental in a way can you expand on that a little yeah uh so so when you say you know canceling comedians uh while the world burns which of course is taken as a representative example and also alliterate so i like that of uh all of the sort of pathological self-defeating things that the uh that the left does uh the the point of that analogy right like like you know nero fiddling while rome burned is to uh is to say that something counterproductive is being done in an emergency uh but argue in the book that it's actually worse than that because it's it's not just a matter of what people are spending their their time on right it's it's not just an issue of oh uh you're doing this when you should be spending all of your time doing this other thing there are lots of things that people could spend no more time doing that they're spending on this stuff uh that uh that would you know would at least just be be neutral right and uh and then, of course, the very clever response you get from a lot of people is, oh, so you're, you know, complaining about this, you know, while the world burns? Well, I think sending the signal to 
uh, people who would be completely alienated by this behavior, that there are lots of people on the left who don't like it, I would argue is actually uh, politically useful. Uh, but I, I think that the, uh, the larger point is, as you indicate, uh, that even if this is a tiny amount of your time that you spend doing stuff like this, even if you do really good work, uh, the, uh, the, the rest of, uh, the rest of your time, you know, that you have, uh, that, um, you know, every once in a while you go shrilly denounce somebody over nonsense, but the rest of your time, uh, you spend on, you know, union organizing, you spend on DSA stuff, then those, that small amount of time that you spend doing this other stuff, uh, is still a problem, uh, in a way that it wouldn't be a problem if you'd spent the same amount of time, you know, getting high and playing video games, uh, you know, because uh, during the time that you spent doing this, you contributed to putting the left in a light, to making people see the left in a light that is going to be deeply alienating to the overwhelming uh, majority of people. It's it's already hard enough to try to convince people uh, to, um, you know, to care about politics uh, in the first place, that that, you know, to think that politics can actually uh, solve their problems, to think that some kind of left project isn't just completely delusional, utopian, you know, fantasy stuff. Uh, but uh, that's already difficult enough without adding in, oh, yeah, and also this club that you want with that we want you to join is composed of people who uh, have a problem, you know, who like want to ban clapping and, uh, and have a huge problem with it. If you uh, get a taco at a Mexican restaurant that might be owned by a white guy. Yeah. I think about uh, the, the latest example of, of the, the bachelor uh, controversy, which I can't like, you know, one of the most popular shows on television uh, uh, just I mean that one. That one to me has been like I can't think of like a, a, a more self defeating thing than than that one. But um, you know, I, as people people might say like, okay, yeah, you're you're doing the same thing, right? You're critiquing the left while the bur world burns, um, forgetting mm -hmm. that you know Karl Marx spent like ninety percent of his time like owning various uh, people on the left who he disagreed <laughs> with about something that I I don't have the time to to read about. But uh, um. What, what do you say what do you think is like like i to to be like to put on the marxist hat like what's the yeah. material base like what's the what are the material conditions undergirding uh this phenomenon uh yeah which actually by the way reminds me of my my favorite quote uh from uh, from marx uh, on uh, on McEunan. uh it's from a letter to Engels, so at least he he wasn't saying this in public but this says uh McEunan has become a monster, a huge mass of flesh and fat, and is barely capable of walking anymore. Uh, and oh, yeah. he, he sort of goes on and on from there. But uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, really did not like that guy. But yeah, but he also spent uh, tons of time, uh, tons of time critiquing uh, the ideas of your Bakunins and Prudans and you know Lasalles and you know various other people uh, on the left because because uh, he thought there were important things that they were getting wrong and uh, and that the left. Uh, needed to get right. Uh, I would actually argue, uh, so I, I want to, I guess, maybe split off the part of your question about the material base, because I think that's really important. Uh, but just to wrap up the first thought, I'd say that uh, that there are two reasons why it's actually valuable to critique the left. It's not actively destructive, uh, like, uh, like 
you know, doing the, the no clapping, you know, denouncing people over nonsense, saying everybody who disagrees with you about one and a half points is basically Nancy Pelosi, all that stuff. Uh, but it's also not just neutral, you know, in the getting high and playing video games uh, category. I think it's actually politically valuable. I think it's politically valuable for two reasons. One is that I believe that lots of leftists who act in all of the different ways that I talk about in the book that I think are counterproductive are well-intentioned people. Uh, who are just used to doing things in a certain way and might actually be receptive to a critique and start doing things in a different way. And so I, I think that I think that, that can have some value, that it can actually help convince some people on the left not to act this way and thus not to do things that sabotage our political project. And then the other reason is the one I kind of alluded to earlier, which is that uh, I think that even if this falls on completely deaf ears on everyone in the left, which I think is too pessimistic, I, I think that uh, when this critique is made and a lot of people don't want to make it because, of course, you don't become a leftist or a socialist in the first place because you want to argue with crazy people about nonsense, uh, you become one uh, because you want to fry much bigger fish about capitalism and imperialism and police violence and all of those things. Uh, so it's understandable that lots of people who roll their eyes at the things being criticized in the book just steer clear of that uh, of that fight. But when this critique is raised, I think some people are persuaded by it and will actually, you know, unironically do better. Uh, but the other reason uh, is that I think that even if it falls on completely deaf ears, even if nobody, uh, you know, who's currently on the left is receptive to it, which, which I, again, I think is too pessimistic, uh, then it's still useful because it sends a signal that this is not a club that you have to become a antisocial weirdo who reminds people of the guy from the HR department to join. Uh, that uh, that this this is that there are much more appealing people in there. That there are people who are just as frustrated by all the stuff about the left that might frustrate you uh, as you are, uh, but also think that it's important to pursue a radical left political project. And I think that itself has useful outrage potential. Finally, on the question of the material base, I think it's complicated. I don't want to reduce it just to this, uh, but I do think that part of the problem here is that so many people who are currently involved in the left are either uh, downwardly mobile members of what's sometimes called the professional managerial class, uh, or at the very least, the downwardly mobile sons and daughters of the professional managerial class. And that Unfortunately, the consequence of that is, you know, and I'm not saying that to say, oh, you know, screw them then, right? You know, the, we, we, don't, we don't want them. Um, and, you know, I mean, look, I, I have, um, you know, my, uh, my day job is as PMC as it gets, uh, you know, but my point instead is to say that people should be aware of the fact that when they come to the socialist left, uh, oftentimes as a result of the fact that a lot of these PMC jobs are becoming more economically precarious, and so they correctly see their uh, economic interests as uh, as aligned with a more left-wing program, they carry with them a lot of the acculturation and a lot of the habits of the uh, PMC, which unfortunately do oftentimes involve a lot of backstabbing as people sort of climb over each other to get up uh, professional and uh, and managerial hierarchies. And again, I think it's not a coincidence uh, that a lot of what I talk about in the book, a lot of what Mark Fisher describes in his classic essay, uh, Exiting the Vampire's Castle, uh, like sounds a lot like a left 
tinged version of a visit from the HR department. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I guess I want to I, I want to follow up on that by um, asking you, and and I think you've already like gotten at a little bit of this, but um, I I feel like one of the criticisms of like worrying about cancel culture that I hear on the left is, um, as you pointed out, uh, you know, some people will say like, oh, well, the problem isn't cancel culture. The problem is at will employment where your mm -hmm. boss can fire you for your political beliefs out of work or really for any reason that they want. Or, you know, the problem isn't cancel culture. The problem is a system where private corporations can really just do as they please. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so what we should be focusing on is not really cancel culture proper, but, mm -hmm. you know, we should be focusing on ending at will employment or we should be focusing on checking the power of corporations. And obviously you would agree with both of those points, but, um, Talk a little bit about why, like the uh, why cancel culture is is sort of the word that you chose um, instead of writing a book about like the the you know how bad at will unemployment is on at will employment. Yeah, I mean to answer the last part of the question first, the reason that I didn't uh, you know write a book about that uh, is that I think among the people I'm primarily trying to talk to uh, in this book, uh, which are people who are already who already identify. Uh, with uh, with the left uh, and its political project, um, they already know that. Right? Yeah. This, this is not this is not news to them that capitalism is really bad. Now that doesn't mean, of course, there's no value to uh, to explaining why capitalism is really really bad. In fact, that's what I spend like most of my time doing in one form or another. Uh, but I think that for the purpose of of this book, I'm trying to talk to people who already know all of that, who already have, from my perspective, a lot of the right normative and political commitments, but who I think are doing things that undermine the possibility of success of that project. Uh, as far as the issue about cancel culture and, uh, and, and at-will employment, uh, I think that there's, there's certainly a germ of truth to that. You know, like, like I said earlier, I think that in a world without at-will employment, uh, doxing, for example, would not have uh, some of the terrors uh, that it, it has for um, for most uh, American workers right now. Um, now, that's not to say that it would not have uh, any terrors. I think that just sort of like harassment by random people is is a bad thing, and that and that you know people quite rationally don't like that and see it as a problem uh, when it happens to them. I don't think that. Uh, the idea that purely psychological harms just sort of don't count is a really weird one to me, especially because some of the people who are most insistent about how psychological harms don't count when it comes to a thousand strangers screaming at somebody that they're a racist or a fascist, you know, over some innocuous thing are exactly the same people who are very insistent, correctly in my view, that psychological harms do count when they're talking mm -hmm. about something like, you know, sexist harassment mm -hmm. online. Uh, so I, I think that there, there's a weird uh, there's a weird inconsistency there. I'd also say that the instinct behind saying no no no, no just just don't don't talk about this cancel culture stuff right don't talk about the way that these cultural and technological trends in our late stage neoliberal hellscape uh, has has made the way we interact with each other so toxic or the ways that that affects the left don't talk about that right only talk about the stuff uh, that. Um, is like a couple steps further down the line, you know, what we're going to do about it. And I think that's a mistake just politically, uh, because I think most uh, people 
who um, who have you know interacted with this this phenomenon are going to have the same reaction that Nando had earlier, just being baffled uh, when people say, "Oh no no no, this doesn't exist. This is no problem. Mm-hmm. Ignore the man behind the curtain. None of this is really happening." Uh, when they can they can see with their own eyes uh, that it is happening. And I think if you say, no, 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 none of that's happening, ignore that. Anybody who says that is really a Republican. Uh, you might as well be Tucker Carlson. I think that that is really self-defeating. And that's just not going to get us a good hearing uh, with the people that we're trying to convince for the solutions that we have to offer to this, like ending at-will employment, mm-hmm. uh, like rebuilding the labor movement, uh, like nationalizing the social media platforms, uh, like... Uh, just rebuilding the left in general so that people don't feel quite so powerless all the time uh, and uh, and the appeal of, hey, at least I, you know, at least I got to be part of completely humiliating this person uh, doesn't have so much appeal. One of the um, one of the arguments you make in your book is not really a political one, but more a cultural one that um, all this stuff has a nefarious effect on culture. On in specifically, you, you talk about comedy that that yeah. this stuff on that has like ruined comedy, and it's not to like you know be like a Sebastian Maniscalco type right wing comedian who's like oh the, you know it's, everyone's so offended right now about everything, but. I do find that the effect uh, on not just comedy, but the culture writ large is very, very nefarious that like, you know, if you like or if you listen to uh, Baby It's Cold Outside at a Christmas party and don't immediately go uh, and and call out the person who put it on, you're participating in rape culture. Um, or if you're or, or that only um, only per- people of a certain minority group can can portray um animate like in, in an animated show someone you know like that kind of thing has a nefarious effect on actors uh, of that minority group because it limits their potential roles um as well as the this idea that you have to be of a certain group to be able to to write a novel in the voice of someone else or a character within a novel in the, in, in in the voice of someone else like that it's like it's weirdly um segre- segregationy for I, I know that you're personally very upset uh, that there are uh, that there are multiple movies based on uh, the sun also rises and for whom the bell tolls uh, that were made exactly by, patient by Spaniards like that's not okay. <laughs> exactly Ernest Hemingway was vicious vicious uh, you know appropriator of my culture um, but yeah I mean I, I just I, I, I the, beyond the political valence of all this stuff it it has undoubtedly had a horrible effect on on the culture in which like you know a movie like uh promising young woman which is nominated for every single award just won the independent spirit award for uh best screenplay and things like that like it is like a movie in which every scene basically says like i this is the message i want to send to you and this is the and i will be the most on the nose thing ever like it's it's created a culture in which like we have to deliver a message and that message has to be explicit and it has to be there, there is no nuance or, or conflict or, or, or complexity and all that stuff. And it's just, I don't know, like the, I, I found that line of critique very, very convincing in, in your book. Yeah. So the opening chapter is about the, uh, the comedy wars and it sort of transitions from there to uh, the broader set of subjects that I wanted to, uh, to tackle in, uh, in the book. And I think that I, I wanted to start out uh, by by talking about that stuff for a couple reasons. One, because I think it's one of the places where there's a certain kind of um, allegedly progressive 
um, moralism that is most on display culturally that, uh, that, that I really hate for a lot of reasons. And I also think is really counterproductive uh, when the left uh, signs on to it. Um, and, uh, and I think that it's, uh, it's also bad in itself, right? And this is something that, of course, I want to be a good materialist and focus on, um, on changing, you know, material conditions. And, and sometimes that focus can shade into just saying that culture doesn't matter or you should ignore it. Uh, but I think that that's ultimately a mistake. Uh, the person who really convinced me of that more than anybody else is the late Michael Brooks, uh, who, who talked about it this uh, a lot. And this is this is how he ended uh, his book, uh, Against the Web, uh, by, by talking about how we do, the left should have a vision of how we uh, we want culture to be. This isn't this isn't ground as much as we should focus on economics and material conditions. This isn't ground that we can uh, profitably just completely concede and, and sort of never mention. Uh, and of course, his vision in there is uh, cosmopolitan socialism, where you have people um, moving around and mixing and you know picking up and discarding you know the pieces of their each other's. Uh, cultural inheritance uh, that uh, that they that they like as they please without really worrying, you know, certainly without prejudice or discrimination, but also without worrying about uh, cultural appropriation because you know socialists shouldn't believe in some sort of like weird ethno-nationalist uh, collective into intellectual property uh, that that everybody has, you know, uh, by virtue of being born into a culture or lax uh, by uh, by virtue of uh, of not being uh, not being born into it. Uh, and uh, and of course that that sort of you know cosmopolitan mixing and uh, and um, cultural uh, you know expression is going to be the most meaningful under socialism when you don't have certain cultural uh, classes of the population who are being uh, kept as a impoverished uh, underclass like we obviously do under capitalism specifically on uh, on what you're talking about yeah I mean I think that. Uh, that there are a couple of different things going on here that are related to each other, certainly. Uh, one of them is this sort of weird essentialism about race and culture and other things uh, that uh, that sometimes uh, shades into uh, this weird kind of woke segregationism. Uh, I, I just saw somebody on, um, on Twitter uh, yesterday, since unfortunately I've not been as wise as Jed, I haven't logged <laughs> off yet. Uh, you know, talking about uh, how at their the media company, you know, it's like a progressive media company that they uh, that they used to work for. Uh, there, uh, there was like an HR diversity training where uh, the uh, the white people were supposed to you know go in sort of one room to do a session with one trainer, and the people of color were supposed to go to another. And uh, there was one person there who uh, was mixed race, had one white parent and one Indian American one, and sort of nervously asked, you know, which one they were supposed to go to, you know, because uh, you have to sort these things out uh which which seems again not terribly uh culturally progressive to me and then of course a lot of this gets uh gets mixed up with a kind of censorious moralism which i think really impacts a lot of the examples that you're talking about and yeah one of the claims that i do make in uh, the comedy chapter is that this is really bad uh look for comedy as an art form which is at its best what it can be uh and i think a lot of american liberals and even some leftists uh, get really confused about this point, and they think that comedy is like a uh, a tool for bringing about social change, hmm. uh, which it's absolutely not. I think that's just total nonsense. And so I think both the willingness of so many progressives to like go to the John Stewart, you know, rally to restore sanity ten years ago, 
uh, is the flip side of the willingness to sort of moralistically attack somebody like Dave Chappelle over these weird literalistic interpretations of uh, jokes made in a stand-up set. I think both of those show this idea that comedy is really politically important in a way that I think is just not. What it is is entertainment, and at its best, uh, it can be a form of art, you know, something that, that says something, you know, about the human condition. Uh, but for both purposes, this kind of moralism is just terrible. And it's terrible on all sides uh, because anybody who's like a moralistic school is going to be a terrible art critic of any kind because they're going to be weird and literalistic about everything. Uh, they want to sort everything into being clearly good and clearly bad when oftentimes the best art rides the ambiguities. Uh, and it also creates a... Uh, god-awful uh, super woke comedy and that kind of clapter uh, comedy that's really supposed to inspire clapping you know more than uh, more than laughter and it also it also inspires a lot of god-awful anti-woke comedy you know which is in fact god is so pervasive that oftentimes even with the really good stuff even with people like bill burr that i really enjoy uh for for like you know a really good album uh, you might have to sit through five to ten minutes of really tedious, predictable, sort of anti-woke, you-can't-tell-a-joke-anymore stuff before you get to uh, the interesting and funny part. And I, and, and I think the, the whole thing is, is, is just awful uh, for, uh, for comedy, and I think it's probably awful for a lot of other art forms, too. I, think that the, uh, I, I, I don't think that the best, uh, the best art, the best entertainment, the most interesting cultural expressions uh, arise from like weird, polarized moral panics. So we we've talked a little bit about, you know, the the part of the left that kind of denies cancel culture. But I, I also want to ask you about the small segment of the left that promotes cancel culture uh, specifically. So so this is this is like. So, so, sorry, Jen, my, my dog yeah. is going nuts. She really wants to be let out of the room. Give me just a second. I thought I heard a dog. Let her out. <laughs> this is Ben's, the opposite uh, of cancel a dog. culture. We should cancel. Yeah, yeah we should cancel <laughs> right, for torturing right. an animal. <laughs> that's what that's my literal interpretation of what is going on right now is that he what is, kind of is, ben what kind of dog do you have it sounds uh, small yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah um so pro canceling um uh what so so what i wanted to say was um yeah. uh, the the argument i guess in favor of canceling that i have heard from the left is you know when you when you talk about cancel culture, what you're really talking about is marginalized people who are speaking up for themselves or fighting back. And when you say they shouldn't do that, you're advocating a kind of form of respectability politics. When you say you don't like woke, you know, the new like woke culture that that you guys were just talking about, like, well, well that's just because you uh, must be a reactionary who liked the old unwoke culture. Um, I this I find this this argument so frustrating, but I never really know how to respond, especially to the claim the claim you know of marginalization that you know cancel culture is actually just marginalized people fighting back. Please give a, give us an answer, <laughs> or give us an argument. Sorry. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to be doing. You're the give them the argument man. Okay, <laughs> it's like the. Um... Yeah, say the line, Bart. You know, yeah. <laughs> right. Dance, monkey, dance. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess the, uh, the the short answer is that uh, that I don't think so. I think, in fact, if you uh, if you look at some uh, some polling data about how people think about this, uh, who are actually members of marginalized group, you'll find that that. Uh, that that hyper wokeness is largely an elite phenomenon, 
Um, to be fair, I, I also think that hyper anti-wokeness is largely an elite phenomenon. These are mostly struggles that take place over, um, you know, that like the people who get the most excited about this uh, are often fighting about like how uh, their their private school that most people would have to you know get a second mortgage to uh, to send their their kids to should uh, should should do its you know anti-racism day or whatever. Uh, but uh, but I think that. Uh, you know, unfortunately, again, my reason for, for being interested in this is that a lot of it infects the culture of the left in, in really unhelpful ways. And I'd say that we can make some common sense distinctions uh, between not being a bigot and being performatively ultra woke. Right? So uh, you can say uh, that uh, that, of course, uh, you should, um, you know, you should not be an asshole about calling trans people by their, you know, uh, requested uh, pronouns, uh, but also uh, without having to say that ContraPoints is a terrible person and secretly hates non-binary people because of your interpretation of something that she tweeted once in 2019 and something else that she tweeted once in 2017. Uh, you know, that I, I don't think it's actually hard, uh, particularly hard to, uh, to ride uh, that distinction that you can be uh, interpersonally respectful, that you can certainly uh, support any number of, uh, of anti-discrimination uh, efforts that actually have really important real-world consequences for things like employment and housing uh, without indulging in uh, this kind of uh, performative ultra-wokeness that seems to primarily uh, be about signaling that you have the right moral commitments uh, and castigating other people who you suspect uh, don't have those moral commitments, uh, which I would actually argue in practice, and I, I, I don't want to be too much of a vulgar Marxist about this, like I'm suggesting that there are some guys- You like, should be. Yeah. Or top hats in a smoke-filled room, you know, like plotting this out as a strategy. But I will <laughs> say that in practice, uh, it's oftentimes the, uh, the case that that sort of ultra woke cultural uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, signaling uh, is something that has the effect of demobilizing and disempowering uh, popular movements that actually could uh, win real gains for uh, marginalized people. So I think the obvious recent example of this uh, is um, there was. Uh, last summer, of course, there was an unprecedented wave of unrest after the murder of, uh, of George Floyd. Uh, and, of course, the things that, that most, you know, activists, you know, uh, would you know, really want uh, were things that would reduce the, uh, the power of the, uh, the police and, uh, and help make it harder for them to, uh, to brutalize people as they manage the social effects of, uh, of poverty. So, you know, doing things like banning, you know, the sale of surplus, you know, military equipment to, uh, to, to police departments, uh, doing, you know, doing things uh, that would make it easier, you know, perhaps having, you know, not just symbolic toothless community review boards, but ones that were really empowered uh, to, uh, to fire bad cops, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But changing the way that policing works in America is an incredibly heavy political lift. And so oftentimes uh, what these efforts got uh, diverted into in practice uh, were uh, this kind of performative moral signaling and getting mad at people who were performatively uh, signaling in, uh, in the right way. So for example, um, a, uh, a good friend of mine uh, who is a podcaster who at the time of the story lived in Brooklyn 
And I'm, I'm, I think by saying that, I've, I've just narrowed that down to about 5,000 people like <laughs> we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> you know, I remember telling me that summer that people uh, were barraging uh, the Facebook page of his neighborhood beer bar because they hadn't made a statement about Black Lives Matter yet, uh, mm. even though they actually hadn't made use their public Facebook page at all in months, you know, since mm. the pandemic started. Um, you know, but of course, since they hadn't done this, uh, they, their silence is deafening. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm still exactly. deaf. Their silence still is deaf. Deafening. Or, or yeah. my all-time favorite example at the same time, there was a theater producer in New York uh, who uh, put together an open-source Google Doc of all of the theater producers around the country who hadn't made some sort of symbolic statement oh of support, uh, which is literally an open-source denunciation list. I can't imagine how that could be abused. Uh, but also, it's just total nonsense. Who is the person who's like a police chief or an elected official who wasn't going to go along with some police reform initiative, but now if the theater tells them to, right? Like they saw a really awesome off-Broadway show at that at that theater, and so if they tell them yeah. to, you know, they'll no, start. I I stopped being racist when I saw Fruit by the Foot tweet <laughs> out support for yeah Gushers uh, and Gushers tweet out support for Black Lives Matter. I was like, you know what? That day. I'm in. Yeah. I'm in, baby. <laughs> Who are the big winners? They're delicious. <laughs> I also marginalized people who are worried about uh, being uh, being brutalized uh, by by the cops. They're getting literally nothing out of that. Uh, the big winners. I actually think this goes back to Jed's discussion earlier of uh, the uh, AAPI issue. Uh, you know, the big the big winners of this are people who are uh, you know middle class professionals or above uh, who can uh, who can sort of wrangle this discourse in order to. Uh, to to sort of edge out members of uh, of other groups in fights about climbing certain kinds of managerial and professional and political ladders, and you know, and and I think that it's the the whole thing is in effect uh, a shell game. It doesn't appeal to uh, to most working class members of marginalized groups, uh, and it does have the effect in practice, even if it's not a conspiracy by anybody. Uh, of diverting movements from change for things that could actually be more useful and substantive in the real world. That would be my case. So I I think the final question for you has Mm -hmm. to be, how do we get out of this morass? How does the left exit the vampire's castle, so to speak? Because, uh, you you know, you had mentioned the Bernie Sanders campaign, which, you know, obviously, obviously sort of rose and fell last year. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, it had a kind of like, like disciplinary is like maybe too strong of a word, but I felt like I felt like I personally saw way less of like this bad behavior or just like default to cancel culture when there was the Bernie campaign going on because there was something for people to focus their energy on, or at least it was easier for those of us who don't want to have anything to do with, you know, the canceling to be like, well, I'm going to make some calls for Bernie today. Or, you know, it, 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 the, the campaign was like a guiding light or something. Sadly, that's over. And of course, we mourn it every day. Um, but in the absence of a kind of vehicle like that, uh, what can the left do to break out of this rut? Yeah, I mean, so th- this is really difficult because I don't actually think that we can will a, uh, you know, we can just sort of will a better left into uh, into existence by uh, by wanting it hard enough. I think mm-hmm. that there are certain things that we can do that can help uh, sort of curb the uh, the worst of the uh, of the toxicity of the existing left and, and help sort of point people towards something better. 
but uh, but unfortunately, I do think that ultimately we are going to need some of those uh, political developments in the real world uh, to be better. I mean, it, like this is I remember, you know, I started writing this book at the end of, uh, of 2019. Uh, and, you know, by the time I was revising it and putting in the sort of appendix about the, uh, the post-George Floyd protests, obviously, you know, things, um, you know, the Bernie campaign was, was already gone. But I remember, you know, there were points that, I, you know, I'll admit to this, I was thinking, man, a book about how badly the left messes up and, uh, and how we need to, to get our collective heads out of our asses uh, is, is going to play really weirdly. Uh, if Bernie Sanders is president uh, in, uh, in 2021, the DSA is like 10 times its current size and there's all this great organizing going on. Yeah, um, we, we, we wish your book was obsolete. Yeah. No, I, I, I wish my book was, was obsolete. I, I, would, I would take that one for the team. But uh, unfortunately, I think since um, the fall of the Bernie campaign and especially since the election, uh, the general election was over, uh, I think that a lot of times the left hasn't really known what's to, what to do with itself. Uh, and uh, there's this sense that that door of political possibility that was starting to open a crack uh, might be starting to, uh, to close again. I think a lot of people are, are, are panicky about that. Uh, and I think that sort of disorientation, the lack of something in the real world, not that, you know, the... Um, everything that happened around the Bernie campaign was uh, was perfect uh, by any means. You know, I, mean, I, I talk about yeah, a couple. He, of he is perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he himself is personally. You know, yes, perfect. but uh, but the but it's like the uh, the czar is, is wonderful, but his evil boyars, you know, are, uh, are you, <laughs> sure. know, you know they have a uh, they are you know I think that if you look, uh, there are unfortunately uh, cases uh, where. You know, even people who were, you know, who were supporters of the Bernie campaign, for example, uh, you know, we we're sort of going along with the shit stirring about Joe Rogan uh, mm-hmm. about, about a year ago. That's an obvious example uh, I talk about in the book. You know, I, I, I saw, um, you know, many people with that Democratic Socialist red rose emoji, you know, in their uh, in their Twitter handles. Oh, well, that's really bad. He shouldn't have done that. Yet. He shouldn't have accepted mm-hmm. The endorsement of this this terrible person, uh, Joe Rogan, uh, and you know people in left media, you know who are uh, who are going along uh, with that message. I think if you look at uh, at what happened with the campaign sort of folding to uh, after the uh, the Daily Beast uh, outed a lot of the private uh, tweets of uh, Ben Mora and, and firing him. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I think that this this stuff was present even there. But I think you're absolutely right, Jen. This this was. Uh, this was somewhat curbed by the fact that there was this really promising thing going on in the real world that everybody could kind of coalesce around and uh, and center uh, their their energies on. And the lack of that, I think, has led to a lot of really toxic uh, and uh, and destructive things. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, you know people. Um, you know, certainly if you look at uh, how. Uh, like when Force the Vote happened in December and, and January, uh, what was actually an extremely minor disagreement about a parliamentary tactic uh, was led to sort of a lot of, you know, like excommunications. You know, anybody who disagrees with me about this is, uh, you know, is, is a fake leftist and, you know, I want nothing more to do with them. Um, and and they probably, you know, work for, you know, for the CIA or, you know, whatever. Uh, I think that I think that that's the kind of thing that unfortunately we might see a lot more of. I think the question is uh, is what can we do that would avoid it? And I think that the part of the most important thing we can do is to 
uh, log off and uh, and seek out uh, real world uh, organizing efforts, uh, and you know for uh, you know related to the labor movement, related to you know Medicare for all canvassing, uh, things like that. And I think that that could have some value, and I hope to try to convince some people to uh, to try to approach this stuff in a healthier way. Uh, but I think that even uh, even until we get something new that's like really big that can have the kind of gravitational pull that the Bernie campaign had, I think that until then, I think just sort of planting the flag for a more reasonable and appealing uh, version of the left, uh, you know, can uh, can mitigate uh, some of the damage, or at least I really really hope so. Well. Ben, that's as good a place as I need to end it. Thank you so much for joining us. The first thing you can do to exit the vampire's castle is read Ben's new book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. Folks, we got a sneak peek of it. I very much enjoyed it. Um, You will too, I promise. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, comrades. All righty, Jen, this is the part of the show where we open it up. Where we take the heat from the viewers. I just want to say, I know got. that you guys, I know that you guys take live questions on the show. We tried to do this once on the Jacobin show, and the first question we got was something like, "Hey, like, where where did you guys grow up?" And I was like, "I know this one." And then the next question was like, "How do we build? How do we rebuild the labor movement after Taft Hartley?" And I was like, "Oh shit." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, sometimes the questions, I mean, I, I pretend like I know what I'm talking about, yeah. but sometimes the questions are like, you know, I just like usually pivot back to my usual talking points like a good politician. But uh, yeah, they're, they're, you know, it's it's tough, but you know, we got to do it. This is why we do the show live. You know, exactly. it's, part of the, it's part of the thing. We bring on producer Kale. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Let's bring on young Kale. Here, here he is. Yeah. We, he usually bails us out sometimes when mm-hmm. you know we don't know something. He'll be like, "Well, actually, uh, you know, he is Karl the Marx real brains of the and... operation." Just, so. just yeah. deadpan state theory. That's kind of all I'm good <laughs> for. Yeah. So if anybody show. has any questions related to that, please let's hear them. Uh, yeah. Um, let's not do state theory today. We do it like every <laughs> every week. Um, actually, we do have a couple super chats in right now, but uh, as Nando and Jen just said, we're taking questions. So leave a super chat and I will fish it out and hopefully read it live. We might not get to every single one, but we'll try to get to a bunch. Um, if they're I'm, easy, it's a it's a better chance of being answered. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Unless you want to hear from Kale, because all the hard questions yeah. go to him. <laughs> yeah. Um, first question, how do we build solidarity with these exploding communists? Well, okay. It's clearly this clear. They're like, you know, they're like the new version of a Molotov cocktail, you know, like the symbol of rebellion and resistance. Uh, now it's the ex- exploding croquetas. You know, there's very, uh, very the differences between Spanish croquetas and Cuban croquetas are a subject of very much a heated debate. Um, you know, Pun Spanish croquetas. intended. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Um, but I personally support both croquetas, uh, because I believe in, uh, solidarity amongst the croqueta community. <laughs> Stay um, in on the hard questions. Oh, sorry. Jenny, I, was, I was just going to say, I, I read the entire article because I was like, I would like to know about this Cuban controversy. And it's actually a little unclear, even in the article, like what the explosion mechanism is and like what's happening to people. Well, like, I feel like more people in the U.S. get burned by McDonald's coffee than exploding croquettes in Cuba. But what do I know? 
Well, I mean, we didn't get into in the Cuba segment on this like ridiculous kind of weird story about the U.S. diplomats complaining about uh, uh, Cubans doing some sort of sonic attack inside their brains. Um, <laughs> but um, I wouldn't be surprised if the croquetas are being exploded by the CIA, that mm -hmm. they, the CIA mm -hmm. has developed some new croqueta technology to uh, harass Cubans on the island. Yeah, so. exploding cigars, exploding croquettes. Yeah, there you go. Uh, part of that strategy... Uh, Nando, how many Che Guevara t-shirts do you own? The wrong <laughs> well, number. I own zero. Uh, <laughs> I own zero. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, that, that that like in the 2000s, when they kind of really became uh, quite popular, uh, it became like a, a, a Miami thing to be like, you know what? Those idiots, they don't know what they're like. They're just like, mm -hmm. naive like leftists. Fashion don't victims. Know anything. Yeah. And it was like. You know, but I do find I do find in general the like the commodification of Che Guevara to become like a, you know, uh, the the Obama hope thing or uh, or like Andre the Giant or something like that, like a, whatever that remember that thing. Um, just kind of, I mean, he would hate it. So you know, I don't participate in that. I have a question for you guys: How many Bernie shirts do you each own? <laughs> yeah, R. Che Guevara. Own, <laughs> I own a single. I own a single Bernie shirt. Um, really, just one? Just the one. I own a single Bernie shirt. And I have a Corbin shirt, um, which was a gift, and I very much like that one. And I have a. Uh, and my sister did, drew a Bernie print, um, which I very, which I have on my on my shelf, and I gave one to Kale. Kale has one somewhere. Let's in there. see it. Yeah. It says, oh yeah, that's First things first. You guys, every single one of you. Yeah. <laughs> we got. Yeah, very very generous. We also have Michael Brooks. The, our our two best boys of 2020 and and forever. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, thank you again to to Nando's sister for those very generous gifts. Um, and I don't know if I've mentioned it, but congratulations if you're listening. Thank you. Um, uh, let me go to some other more. Oh, your well, que Jen's question. Yeah, it's like six. Okay, so the next <laughs> the next super chat. How many do you have, Jen? <laughs> Aside from the ACDC shirt, do you have any Bernie shirts? I, I do have, I think I have like two official Bernie shirts, uh, one from 2016 and one from 2020. And then I have like a few, you know how there are like a bunch of Bernie bootleg shirts that were like yeah. made to look like other logos. I have a few of those too. Yeah. So like oh, nice. 50. No, I, I also kidding. have a Bernie sweatshirt. I have a very oh, cool yeah, Bernie yeah. sweatshirt. Now that uh -huh. I remember that. Yeah. Is it the one that's black? Yeah. No, it's like, okay. uh, it's kind of like light blue. Mm, sort that of. sounds like nice. Blue gray. Yeah. It's nice. Pastel. Yeah. Poppin, big pimpin' over here with Nando. Um, I wanted to, okay, before we uh, go on to some of the other Super Chats, um, Lee sent a couple earlier in the show that I wanted to read out uh, that she had said that uh, Biden's foreign policy was obvious given that his foreign given by his foreign policy team, that we, we knew what it was gonna be based on the people that were put in, in place, and not unlike Obama's economic team, screaming neoliberalism continues. Um, that's, I think, yeah. totally fair and true. Um, there's, uh, if people are familiar with the book, uh, The Best and the Brightest by David Halberstam, it's like, he's an incredible journalist and it's detailing the kind of rise and fall of uh, the Kennedy administration and the people that were brought in in 1960 and onward and how, again, the best and the brightest ended up leading the country into uh, war in Vietnam. And uh, he has this line, I'm going to totally butcher it and uh, by 
you know, I just, uh, it's been a while since I read the book. You should all pick up the book in addition to Ben's book, um, where he's like, uh, yeah, when you, you know, assign uh, someone from the Navy to a particular uh, um, political role, and you ask them, what do you think we should do? How should we move into this, this situation? They're going to probably say, let's more Navy. Es- yeah. Escalate the Navy um, or the Navy's involvement. But like these are, these are institutions within the military industrial complex that uh, you know, these are career ladders. Um, there's a fantastic essay that we actually built a segment around a couple months ago with Nando on um it's by, uh, let me find it, um, but it's Richard, um, uh, God, I'm going to... Folks, don't. this is the, this is the, <laughs> some professional broadcasting, uh, you know, like, oh, what was his name again? Let me look it up. I'm going to Google it right now. Uh, yeah, the, uh, <laughs> that's what we're doing now. Richard Lackman, um, without rival, without victory, uh, the U.S. military, and, uh, it's very worth checking out just kind of the analysis of how those internal structures actually redound to, um, you know, what U.S. foreign policy ends up being. Um, and um, also, uh, okay, well, let me let me move on to some of these other ones um, that we got a super chat asking, could you guys apply a Marxist critique to social capital slash social media, et cetera, et cetera, in the same way you might with material capital? Hmm. I guess it depends on how much of a vulgar Marxist you are. Kale, pull up that uh, little. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, I, I don't good know. advice. Good advice. Yeah. I, I don't I don't dislike uh, terms like social capital and cultural capital. I think that they have their uses. Um, I know that uh, some some of the more vulgar among us, who I of course have all the respect for, don't like those terms at all and think we should only be talking about capital capital. Um, but sorry, what was the question again? Um, uh, Apply a Marxist critique to social media and social capital. Yeah. Right. Social media. I mean, I think that you can definitely do, uh, you know, uh, do a political economy of social media. Um, you know, who owns social media, uh, who profits from social media, how did, you know, profit structures and incentives uh, cause the rise of social media. I mean, I think that's a material analysis of social media. Now, in terms of social capital, which is about um, the kind of benefits you enjoy from your network and your family, I mean, that that can be a way of talking about your class position, right? So if you are born into a wealthy family, you may have a lot of social capital insofar as your rich parents can get you a job, can, you know, get you into college if you're uh uh, you know, <laughs> Lori Laughlin, uh, or whatever. Um, but at the same time, that's not unconnected from the financial or like economic benefits that your family enjoys. So I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer. Would you, would you guys have anything to add? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the only thing I would other add is like that, uh, just the idea of the, in a way, like the, the enclosure of the commons, uh, that that's kind of what social media has done, Mm-hmm. Um, to the internet, um, uh, that it's just, it really was a, you know, or you can imagine it being kind of like a, like a public common space that's been sort of de facto privatized by mm-hmm. four companies. Um, and we are all living within it. Um, but yeah, I don't have much yeah. from what you said. Yeah, I guess, I guess just that, um, again, I, I'm just building off of what Jen and Nando have said that I, I think 
the place that social media has taken within our modern society is largely symptomatic of how the economy and how society have changed in the way that Nando's saying that. Um, so I wouldn't say that, you know, things are so bad because of social media. I would say things are really bad um, because of uh, the change in work, the change in um, who owns what and, in, you know, what degrees and in amounts and percentages. Um, and the fact that more and more of us, uh, you know, have very little control over our lives, that we have to go into a workplace every single day where you basically have a private dictator telling you what to do, where to stand, if and when you get a bathroom break. Um, and so we as social creatures need some kind of social interaction and then social media largely, I think, uh, kind of undermines those needs that it kind of promises uh, to fulfill the, you know, the need to reach out to family members or friends or people we care about and hearing about what's going on in their lives. Um, and it's, it's so the opposite that it ends up making us more just based on like actual scientific data. It makes us more paranoid. It makes us more alienated. It makes us more, feel more alone. Um, and so, you know, something like uh, the pandemic, which for some people that has meant sitting inside all the time, for others, um, a lot of workers, it meant speed ups, it uh, meant precarious employment. Um, you know, we end up turning to social media in the same way that we people turn to, to drugs. And so I think it's um, Ben, ben uh, Fong, who has been on this channel and we'll probably get him back on soon enough, um, has uh, he's been working on basically making that argument in a book form pretty soon um, that yeah. social media should be understood socially in the same language and terms as like someone who basically uses drugs in order to cope with the horrible aspects of life. Um, yeah. I've heard Amber make a similar analogy before where she says something like she has a friend who like is able to do meth like twice a year without getting addicted. She just like sends her kids to the babysitters and like, I don't know, like does the meth and like cleans her house. And like some people have that relationship to social media as well, where they just are able to bypass the addictive qualities and it's not toxic or poisonous uh, or, or like undermines their lives at all. They're just able to use it <laughs> like here and there with no ill effects. Um, and I really like that story. I'm, I'm sure she's told yeah. it on the channel before. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, well, just on that note, there was another super chat that was saying, um, hi, I know social media can be toxic, but would the Black Lives Matter protests have been as large without getting the word out on Twitter, Facebook, etc.? It helps awareness of police murders and other issues, which impact news coverage and activism. Um, just to continue this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 like anything in life. It's a mixed bag in that it's like not like there's positive aspects of social media and one of them it is, it is true that it is easier to stay connected to your friends and family like i know what my family's up to in a way that i wouldn't you know my family back in spain in a way that i wouldn't if if i didn't have social media um and that's kind of nice you know that's a positive thing you, you you can't say that it's not um but it but it has sort of also these nefarious effects mm -hmm. and the, the question is like what what is you know where is where is the battle between the pros and the cons um i think largely the cons probably outweigh the pros but the, but it is true that it does make it easier to 
um, you know, for some political issue to uh, get out there. I mean, it is true that without YouTube or podcasting and, and, and independent media, uh, that sort of a lot of these left media wouldn't be able to survive in the United States, which is you know, for forever had like this hermetically sealed kind of media culture in which like, you know, left the left media was subject like left to like a handful of independent magazines that no one read. Um, so uh, there are positive aspects of it, you know, but the, the question is like, do they outweigh the negative ones? I think that's, that's the way to look at it. We should, uh, we should hand this question over to Kale because he literally wrote a Jacobin article about it, which you should all check out if you it's haven't true. already. Um, but I want to say that the flip side to social media being a kind of a billboard, I guess, or like being a way to get information about Black Lives Matter protests out there is I, I just can never stop thinking about how DeRay McKesson, who, you know, is, of course, or was maybe still is a leading Black Lives Matter activist, huge on social media, trumpeted the, you know, glory and wonder of social media, um, and then ran for mayor of Baltimore, I believe, and got less than 1% of the vote, despite this huge social media following, um, and yeah. not just the social media following, but all of the traditional media attention that resulted from his social media right. following. So I guess the question is like, I, or I mean, I think it's just a variation on what you said, Nando, that like, obviously, there are some benefits in terms of promotion, and, you know, marketing, I guess, to put it crudely and getting the word out. But when it when it comes to whether that increased PR is going to lead to, you know, substantive change, I mean, it's unclear to me still. Well, and also the bad guys have the same mm -hmm. ability yeah. to to do all that so yep. right. you know what i mean the bad guys can can you know do all like look up any uh every single day um kevin kevin roos who's a new york times uh, columnist publishes the top and most shared posts on facebook and like every single day it's like dan bongino ben shapiro ben shapiro <laughs> right, right. uh like Na nancy pelosi is a demon uh page uh you know, like that one's from Jacobin. To be fair, of, no, I'm just yeah, kidding. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that, that was a Jacobin <laughs> post by Bridges. <laughs> yeah, But uh, it was. It, it's it's all like the top ten posts every single day are, yeah. if not ten out of ten, nine out of ten, just like some insane right wing thing. Mm -hmm. um, ditto YouTube. The yeah. right dominates on YouTube, not just here in yeah. the United States, but normally in places like Brazil and Spain. Uh, you cannot understand the rise of far right politics without looking at social media in those countries. So they got the same, they got the same benefits for their, yeah. for their team. Yeah. And so. Well, and I think I, what I've argued and I'm not the, I'm certainly not the first one to argue this. Plenty of other people have argued this, that, you know, we should think of social media. Um, <laughs> Sorry. The, Jen just giving a little little shout out to Salami Mommy. Um, uh, uh, hello, and, Salami Mommy. I was just clicking around the screen, and apparently, uh, my mouse really liked your comment. When, LMAO. I can do that. I don't. I don't know. I could do that now. I know. Oh, I'm going to be doing this. Once <laughs> Nando, I learn Nando's about to this new power. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but uh, what I was going to say is, I, I think we use we should be thinking of something like social media as um, as an instrument. It's we use it instrumentally that it's a tool that we can use. Um, and I think very often it does make sense to use this tool. Um, and uh, what, you know, what we've already said is a part of that. I mean, the, the example that I've given in the past is the West Virginia teacher strike. Mm -hmm. um, they were successful in being able to coordinate all the school districts across the state when they went out on strike 
in 2018 um, by linking up in a Facebook group. And that's awesome. That's great that that um, was useful in that way that it served those ends and that the organizers successfully carried out the strike. But I don't think it was because of Facebook necessarily. I think it's because you had really smart organizers. Um, and, and there's other factors as well. But, you know, the counter example is like, look what happened just with uh, less than a month ago with Bessemer, where you had all yeah. the social media attention, all this uh, legacy media attention. Um, and it was, uh, you know, really tragic defeat for the organizers. And I think what that just says is that, like, the tool itself, social media, has limitations. It's not, it doesn't do as much as we would hope it can do, and that it's not a substitute for building trust and solidarity among people that you're organizing with. And so this is also a question of, like, what are the stakes in the fight that you're in, right? That uh, some fights, you know, or some, some immediate political tasks, social media is great for if it's just getting the word out. Or just getting people to show up at uh, a protest, um, especially if it's not during work hours. Um, but if you're trying to, if you're actively in a fight against, uh, you know, a powerful elite or a powerful enemy, whether it's, um, you know, Amazon, uh, whether it's the NYPD or however you want to, you know, whatever your enemy is in your political fight, um, you know, social media for the reasons that. Nando and Jen have said, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the bad guys can use it too. And it's basically geared towards their, their interests and their, mm -hmm. um, you know, their ability to make profit and not really geared towards our interests. And so uh, I think we just have to think of it very instrumentally. Like, you know, it's not a substitute for the, the really foundational aspects of organizing that we on the left have discovered and learned and refined um, basically over the last 150 years. And there's a lot that we need to figure out again, that the same exact methods that were employed in the 1930s, for instance, in order to organize the American working class, some of them are going to be essential and we need to pick them up again and relearn how to do them. Um, and then there's other things that are not gonna work because capitalism and, uh, and the terrain that we're organizing on, the actual workplaces that we're uh, dealing with um, the particular political fights have changed. And so, um, you know, when, whether it's the fact that we have to deal with Taft-Hartley, whether it's the fact that there's so many people who are in precarious work situations that they're um, gig workers, uh, so much of the global South is made up of gig workers. And we don't really have a labor strategy to deal with gig workers right now. And that's something that we need more than ever before, that we need to figure that out immediately um, and I don't think social media is going to be the, like the silver bullet. I, I, I don't even think it's going to be like a major part of that strategy, but not I, I also want to, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. maybe a cap gun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I also just want to quickly mention, so Jane McAlevey has what I think is a great distinction between mobilizing and deep organizing and apologies if you've heard us talk about this before, because I feel like we bring this up like on the Jacobin channel all the time. Um, but mobilizing is basically, you know, the the activity that you do when you want to bring together a constituency that's already there um, to show up for a protest, uh, for example. And then deep organizing is the kind of uh, more long-term base building that you need to do to 
generate, say, an American left uh, or to revive the labor movement, where that's the kind of in-person on the ground work of, you know, talking to people uh, and and working with the people that you that are your colleagues and, you know, your neighbors and people that people that you uh, want to make political cause with. And it seems to me like social media can only be really useful in the mobilizing part, right? Uh, and, you know, as the as this commentator was sort of pointing out, like it, it, it can be very, very useful in getting a large number of people to one spot. Um, but I also think that that because it's it's the nature of mobilizing rather than organizing that it's very ephemeral. Okay. I think it makes sense. Um, there's other super chats, but we're kind of over time. And so oh, I think we're yeah. going to call it there. But we appreciate all of your super chats. And we'll be thinking about them throughout the week. <laughs> um, I really every one of you. No, it really, it really does matter to us. And we really do appreciate it. Um, yeah, and, thank you. And These I, were great. And I always feel bad that we don't get to every single one of them. But one day we will. So thank you. Um, thanks, Jen, for stepping in today. Thanks, Ben for always being on point, never pulls a punch, and uh, has a great no new book that you guys should check out. Um, I'm going to sign off and let you guys sign off. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Have a, have a good weekend. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Um, well, well Nando, Jen, thank thanks. you so, so much. Oh, thank no. you for having me on weekends. Um, may I make a plug for the Jacobin Show of course. next week? Plug away. Um, so, you know, I actually want to mention, Kale, Kale reminded us to mention the Derek Chauvin trial at the beginning of the show. Um, and I think we, like, blazed over it with all the other stuff that we needed to get to. Um, but, you know, I... I want to say, I know that we both on, you know, sort of different shows that we've been on, on, on the Jacobin channel last week mentioned that the verdict of the Derek Chauvin trial was a huge relief. Um, at least I thought so. Um, of course it in no way, you know, does it in no way erases all of the police violence that has come before. Um, it, it, I don't think it will be alone a deterrent to very much police violence in the future. And most crucially, you know, George, Flo George Floyd is not alive. So is this, is this verdict, uh, you know, complete uh, silver bullet, as I guess we've been saying? No, of course not. Um, now that said, um, as I mentioned on the Jacobin show, you know, something like 98% of police killings do not result in a criminal charge, let alone a conviction, right? So the fact that Derek Chauvin was convicted on all three counts, including second degree murder, which honestly was pretty shocking to me, like given the state of how these things usually go in the US, um, I thought it was a huge step forward. Um, and I also, you know, want to say following from that, coincidentally, our guest on the Jacobin show, uh, this coming Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern time, is going to be Adonar Usmani, who is a sociologist who studies crime and policing uh, and incarceration. So we're going to talk to him about how we can sort of make sense of, you know, both both the fact that we are in a historic crime wave, unfortunately. Um, and, and, you know, that's an uncomfortable thing, but it's something that I mentioned in my decode segment. Um, so how can we respond to that? How can we, how can we treat the social causes of that? Uh, but at the same time, you know, without resorting obviously to a draconian law and order backlash, like we've seen in the past. Uh, so, you know, Adoner has studied the the 94 crime bill as well as the origins of mass incarceration. Um, so if you're interested in perhaps hearing about that and hearing about like 
what kinds of police reforms actually work, please tune in. Um, but anyway, Nando, any any additional thoughts on yeah. the Chauvin trial? Oh, I'll, no, I, I share your I share your exact take. I mean, just deep relief. I mean, the 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 alternative would have. I mean, the, I just don't even want to think about what yeah. what that would have caused, both in, in terms of an immediate reaction, but also just long term, the feeling of powerlessness, hopelessness, cynicism that it would have created. Like that, we did all that, went through all that trouble for nothing. Right. You right. know, that would have right. just been. A, an incredible uh, letdown. So while it was like the bare minimum that could have happened, you know, at least that happened and, and, and we can, and we can, and we can sort of feel that we, that, that all that, all that work led to something. So that, that mm-hmm. was my immediate reaction. And I'll be, I'll be interested to see what Adonar has to say on, on the Jacobin show. I always find him incredibly useful and surprising to read um, in, in, in really great ways. So, um, I'll be curious. Great. Well, again, next next Wednesday, please tune in, everyone. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I guess on that note, uh, again, thank yeah. you for having me on weekends. Thanks to everybody for watching. Um, I had a great time. Loved talking to Ben. And hopefully I'll come back soon. Yeah. Thanks for taking your time out of a busy weekend, you know, of drinking and partying to, to, <laughs> to yap on, on the Jacobin show. Always a pleasure. All, all right. right. See you later, guys. Bye, everyone.